Hey everybody, welcome to the Row Hunting Resources Podcast. All right, it is April 26th, 2021, and it is windy and 97 degrees out. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining because I'm not kind of, I'm not complaining per se, but especially given the fact that, oh, what, a week to 10 days ago? No, 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 it was last week. We had 26 degree temperatures in the morning. It was like what the real feel was like 13 or 16 degrees. Uh, it was a little chilly. It was kind of winterish, and I was I was over winter. I was I was wanting to have some nice spring, but uh, I'm afraid we're gonna go from winter and we're just gonna jump head first sailor dive straight into summer, which I'd really like to enjoy some nice spring weather, and I'd kind of really like to get some more moisture because uh, yeah. Our habitat habitat projects could really darn well use it. But uh, anyway, I'm jumping ahead. So, uh, yeah, welcome. All right, let me try to knock some podcasts out whilst uh, our turkey hunts are on pause. So, all of the turkey hunts that are scheduled for April, April are done. And my next group does not come in until May, uh, about the middle of May. So I've got a couple weeks here where I'm going to hopefully knock out some podcasts. I'm going to, I'm going to be scrambling to get a whole bunch of habitat work done. Uh, just a whole bunch of stuff. So I've got a little time. So this is the first go on knocking out some, well, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle a bunch of different questions. A bunch of questions have come in and I'm going to jump on a few of them today. So I guess first and foremost, I guess if you are a, an observant, uh, podcast listener and you are astute in your observations of this episode being episode 16 you might be wondering where the heck is episode 15 well if you follow me on the instagrams uh, a little on facebook i'm real like I, i've said before i'm kind of pulling away from facebook I'm, instagram's not that it's not that well let me rephrase it. it's not that instagram's much better it's just it's just better than Facebook, in my opinion. So I just don't do a lot on Facebook anymore. But Instagram, at least, I posted that uh, episode 15 was uh, the first step in the conversation. Some of those deeper conversations I alluded to in episode 14, where Chrissy's going to start talking. And so episode 15 is understanding ideology. And it's a two and a half hour long video uh, audio discussion. I say video because there's a strong visual visual component to it that I think is in, a it's important, uh, but b it just for lack of anything else, it just helps me visualize things and, and organize things better. And I, I shared that visual with folks uh, to, in, in hopes that it kind of helped clarify uh, a little bit for folks as well that are kind of like me, visual learners. Um, episode 15 was posted to the website for our subscribers first. Now I might go ahead and here in a little bit, release that episode, probably maybe on YouTube, uh, for people who aren't subscribers, cause I think it's valuable. I, I don't know. The feedback I've gotten so far has been great. And, and for those that watched and listened to it, thank you very much. And I, I sincerely appreciate the feedback. And there was a bunch of, of really good 
comments that came in uh, regarding that visual, regarding the ideological tendrils. I talk about the color wheel, that ideological spectrum, whether it's actually a circle or, or, or could it be a sphere, you know, a three-dimensional. I think that's absolutely the case. I, I really do think it could be. But geez, oh, Pete, do you want to actually let's complicate that sucker even more? Um, but yeah, and and uh, some discussion about that deep dark pit of that two and a half percent on either side, the the five percent at the bottom, um, and and what we're dealing with today, and are we seeing more and more people get pulled down into that realm of ideology? And I think so. Now, like I talked about in that episode, um, part two. I'm working on right now, and I've got the, I mean, if you saw the stack of notes that I, I really like taking notes by hand because it just kind of helps solidify those ideas in my head it's much better for me than if I type them out, but the stack of notes that I've got, I just trying to, to wrap my head around uh, part two, which is going to be how we play, how, how society, how we as individuals, how we in society, how we play within that ideological spectrum, um, with each other, with just all sorts of topics. I mean, it's a monster. I mean, heck, Jordan Peterson spent his entire professional career of, what, 20, 30, 40, I don't know how long, 30-plus years probably, being a clinical psychologist. So I, it's not like I'm going to make any earth-shattering, you know, discoveries here. That's not the point. It's just going to be just identifying a few things that I've seen and just things that we all need to be cognizant of. So I... I ramble on and I share all that because if you want to, if you want to watch it, and if you want to, uh, and you know, get the full all of the podcasts that are going to be put out and, and the videos that I'm that I'm going to be putting out, then I'm going to ask you to become a subscriber. We don't have, I don't, I have yet to run advertisers and advertisements on this because I've always had the the subscription based model since 2010, 2000 when we started 2010, 2011, we started the subscription based stuff and I've always been committed to that because I want to work for you, the listener, the watcher, the the video watcher. Those people that are coming to this because they want they it, whether they're getting quality, I, I would like to think that I'm giving you quality information, but even if you I, I don't know I guess if you're if you don't think you're getting quality information, you're not going to continue to be a subscriber, and that's how that model works. and And it kind of helps me gauge on whether or not I'm doing a good job. Because do you continue to sub- do our subscribers continue to subscribe, or do, or or are we losing uh, subscribers? Well, we're continually growing each year, and I think in 2021, I think we can really take that up a notch. I'm hoping, but I am going to always post stuff that will be for our subscribers only, or at least the first, our subscribers are going to get the first crack at it and they're going to have the first level of discussion and, and engagement in uh, some of these these um, bigger topics and concepts and, and some of the important stuff that we're going to talk about, especially even when we talk about elk or habitat, deer habitat stuff or deer management stuff we're going to talk about. So yeah, please, if you, if you want access to all of it, uh, when it's released, and I would absolutely ask, just go to the website and become a subscriber. I don't care. Just go to the minimal, just do the minimal subscription. I don't care. But we even the full access uh, for everything, for an annual is even cheap. It's, it's not that much. So anyway, that's where it is. Episode 16, Understanding Ideology, two and a half hours of in-depth discussion, some heavy lifting with our gray matter between our ears. Um, my ideas on a bunch of things, 
It's posted on the website right now, both in audio format and in video. And again, I know some people like to just listen to the audio, but this this one does have a strong visual component to it. So I think it's I think it's valuable to you if you went over and, and watched the video um, for as well. So that is where episode 15, did I say 16 before? This is 16. Episode 15, Understanding Ideology. That is where that is. That is what has been chewing up a bulk of my time over the past, you know, as far as intellectual brain power over the past 12 to 14 months. And part two is going to be no less of a, of a monster to tackle. So yes, still working on that one, but I wanted to get a couple of these other ones out of the way first, and then I can really kind of chew on it uh, a little bit better. So yeah, our turkey hunts are on pause right now, and we are getting ready for our 2021 uh, whitetail hunts out here in Kansas. So the relevant point about that is I've got a handful of uh, our hunters that are getting ready. So the application period to, so a non-resident, if you want to come and hunt with rolling resources, or if you want to come hunt Kansas for deer, as a non-resident, that's a, that's a limited license. You have to apply for that license. You go on the Kansas, uh, Parks and Wildlife, Kansas Outdoors, whatever. I don't know. Just, just look up Kansas hunting, Kansas Parks and Wildlife. And it'll take you to the Kansas uh, Parks, Wildlife, and Tourism page. And you can get in there and you can apply for that deer license, whitetail license. Uh, and I say whitetail license because for where we are, our mule deer population is just in the tank. We, we just don't have mule deer much anymore. And we certainly don't have a population of mule deer that we would even entertain hunting at this point. So we just focus on whitetail hunts. So those people that are interested in coming out and hunting have been getting a hold of me. We've been going through the, the application process, and there's a couple things that you can do to pretty much guarantee that you can get a tag this year if you want it. Um, but that application period closes April 30th of this, yeah, April 30th, uh, yeah, of this month, yeah, duh, uh, April 30th, 2021. So for those that are interested in coming out, and the reason why I say that is because this year might be a darn good year. Now we're going to see about what the drought situation is going to translate into. We're, we're going into this spring just stupidly dry. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Ex- <clears throat> again, um, let me get a drink. Ooh. <clears throat> ah, stupidly dry. Um, it's been okay. Other than today and the past couple days, but today seriously hot. Uh, up until now, it's been a relatively cool spring, cool enough to where it's kind of slowed down some of the growth of our uh, cool season plots that we planted this spring. So you, a lot of you know that if you again, if you follow me on social media, you know that we planted uh, spring oats. And we planted those heck in March. And if it had, if we'd get, now we did get some good moisture on those. And if it had warmed up a little bit, just not hot, but if it just warmed up and stayed above freezing more at night, boy, we would have a, just a Dan, I mean, just an awesome set stand of oats and, and the other stuff that we planted coming up this spring, but it's just been cool. It's been so cool that the soil temperature hasn't warmed up enough to really kick that growth into gear. So we still have young plants uh, right now. So yeah, I want it. uh, Anyway, uh, yeah, I want it warmer, but goodness gracious, um, we need some moisture. Or I mean, I wanted it warmer than it was, but 90 some odd degrees right now is a little much, but yeah, so it's dry. It's really dry. 
But we've got some good stuff growing, and we've got some good stuff planned, and I've been scrambling right now. I, I was on the sprayer this morning when it was not windy and it was not hot, just trying to get some stuff prepped because we're going to be putting some cover in. We're going to be putting some other food plots in. Um, we've got some awesome habitat stuff lined up for 2021. We have some new stand locations going to go in for 2021 based on what we saw as for deer movement last year. Uh, you saw that social media post I've got, we've got, and I just posted a handful of the pictures that I had on my phone. I've got some other ones that are on the computer here, but man, we, last year we had a, we had a lot of fun. We killed some decent deer, but we didn't kill any of our hit lister bucks, the, the, the main hit list bucks that we were after either they just weren't there when the hunters were in the stand or literally we had one guy come back during late season and was literally in the process of putting pressure on the string and getting ready to draw back on one of our biggest bucks. And that buck just about stepped into the shooting lane, stopped, looked up, saw a doe, turned around and just went after the doe. Just, just took off it, just running after the doe. Just complete random bad luck. Otherwise, we would have put about a hundred and mid-160s buck on the ground. Easy mid-160s buck on the ground. Um, but yeah, that's just how it goes. But So we didn't kill any of our, our big bucks. And then all the way through December and into January, I put cameras out in places where we know either they're you know, travel corridors where the deer are moving out to food or those little interior food plots that we've got, those little sanctuary plots and some of the areas that are in those sanctuary bedding areas. I'll just put the game cameras in there just to monitor who's still around. And sure enough, like the vast majority of our big, big, you know, A-list bucks that we wanted in 2020 were still alive in the beginning of January. Now, I have no idea what happened. And that's, that's all the hunting seasons are done at that point, other than antlerless, you know, doe seasons. Um, and we're the ones that, are pretty much the only ones that take advantage of those late doe seasons. There's a couple people around us, but nothing that's going to put pressure on anything or, or cause a problem. So unless the coyotes pull them down, they should still be around for 2021. And goodness gracious, with our crop rotation that we're going to have in some of those locations, we're going to have soybean all summer, plus the food plots that we've got in there now, plus the cover plots that we're going to be putting in you know, here shortly, plus the food plots we're going to have in here summer and then fall, oh, goodness gracious. I, if they're still around and they're still, if, if well, if they're still alive. If they're still alive, they're going to still be around because our habitat, now, don't get me wrong, they use some of our neighbors as well, depending on the area, depending on the property. There's Some of these deer are using some of our other properties as well. But I think the, uh, the juxtaposition, shall we say, of food resources this year and our cover Man, should be awesome. Why am I saying that? I'm saying that because literally some of you that are listening that have thought about wanting to, and that have contacted me to, you know, saying, hey, it'd be cool to come out and hunt with you. Uh, yeah, you might want to because several of, not, well, what about what we got? I can think of three. We have several of our, what I would call our regular hunters uh, that, usually hunt with us each year. Now, let me let me just take a take a pause a minute because this this is important too. I've always set up our program as I do not turn and burn hunters. 
I do not book a piss pile of hunts, put people in ground blinds over a bait pile and just say, go sit there and, and shoot what, you know, shoot some big animal. No. And then, and then just have, you know, four, six, eight, ten guys in camp at a time. That That's not how our hunts go. We, we very, we, most of the time we're running one, two, maybe three or four. If, if, if I'm maybe usually it's one or two hunters per week. If I go three or four hunters per week, that is a, that is that own group. We'd be like you, your two or three kids or your two or three buddies, or it's your hunting party. All right. And you might want to be sharing, you know, stands or sitting in ground blinds together or whatever. So I don't mind having three or four people a week, as long as they're from the same group that all enjoy one another's company and are out there just to, to spend time with each other and, and, and just have a great hunt as a unit, because we really do focus on a high quality hunt experience. And I tell people all the time, I don't, I will shake your hand just as hard. If you, you know, kill a two by two whitetail buck as I would, if you killed a two Oh two white tail buck. Okay. So last year we killed, uh, one of my landowners killed a 201 inch giant, which was awesome. (laughs) It was awesome. Uh, but some of our other hunters come out and it's their first white tail hunt, or they might have a mid one twenties buck walk out in front of them. And it's the biggest buck that they've ever seen in their life or a one thirty buck. It's the biggest buck that they've ever had a chance at and they want to shoot it. And I'm like, heck yeah, I will shake your hand. Our focus is about hunt quality. So we we highly limit our harvest to where we are not even remotely putting a dent in the buck population that chooses to occupy our land in the fall, especially the winter, because I manage for sanctuary in low pressure so that all the other pressure, all the other uh, activity on lands around us just end up sending everything into us. And now we are on year, what is this, year seven? I don't remember. I think we're going seven. Yeah. So it's been a long time. And a lot of the animals that have, have lived here their entire life now know the program. We've got five and a half year old bucks in the fall that in six-year-old bucks in the fall, that this is this program is all they've ever known since they were a year and a half old buck and, and dispersed into the, you know, immigrated into our area. When they dispersed away from their mother's home range and decided to trip down the river bottom or down through the the you know the fields and across the, the pastures and everything, and they stumble onto our property and they realize, man, this looks pretty darn good. And they decided to stay, this is all they've ever known. So we pack in a lot of deer in the late season. It's awesome. So it really doesn't matter what we harvest. We don't have to sit there and say, okay, you can only shoot, you know, 150 inch deer or better. No, because we're, I mean, literally we've got so much movement in and out of our properties and more like more accurately in the fall onto our properties that we're not even putting a, a, a remote dent in the buck percentage uh, or a portion of the population. So it's just a fun hunt. It's 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 managed for high hunt experience, high hunt quality uh, for your hunt experience. All right. And so, and then number two, and this was by design, and this is how I've always managed my hunts. 
I like to build long-term relationships. And so there's the old adage, birds of a feather flock together. And by and large, those people that end up liking who I am and, and how I articulate myself and my ideas and philosophy and what I teach and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you, you get a feel for who I am. Those people that, that generally have that same value set and seem to have that same mindset are the ones that usually come out here to hunt, which translates into a lot of those that come out to your hunt are, they're a perfect fit for the program. We get along great. We have a blast. Uh, they're just quality people to where we want to try to the greatest extent possible to foster long-term relationships. And so if you come out to hunt and you're a good fit for the program and you had fun and you want to come back again, you're going to get priority. Those people that are, are that want to be, that, that fit the program and we have fun with, that want to come back year after year, those are the folks, those are the hunters that get the first crack at it, the, the first priority. And so that is what I'm doing now. All of the all of the guys and gals that want to come back this year, I've already contacted them. They've already got their applications in. I'm I'm ready to to start scheduling them essentially because I know they're going to draw their tag. However, we have some openings this year because some of our hunters have drawn you know premium you know sheep tags or goat tags. Or maybe they drew an Iowa tag. You know, they've drawn other tags that are that are harder to get and more premium tags that are going to take up the bulk of their vacation time in the fall. So they're like, Chris, I, you know, I drew a sheep tag. Uh, I'm like, dude, go focus on your sheep tag. Don't come here. Just put in for a preference point. You can come 2022. You're guaranteed the the tag if you have one preference point. But no, heck no. You've killed good deer. Now, just go focus on your sheep tag or your goat tag because who knows if you're ever going to get that again, okay? So, but we have a couple openings. We have a couple openings. So if you want in, now's the time to, to, to think about it, all right? And really, if you want to think about it, you need to get a hold of me like right now because again, the application period for Kansas closes April 30th. So you need to get Johnny on the spot. I'm going to I'm gonna release this sucker. I'm hoping tonight so you'll have it probably. You can listen to it either later tonight or on Tuesday. Uh, the tw- I took my watch off. What is it, 26 today? Yeah, so hopefully this is up and running the evening of the 26th, if not the morning of the 27th, so that you guys can just get Johnny on the spot and, and go. But yeah, if you want to come out for a hunt, you need to let me know, like, right now. And it's this is it based on draw odds and based on what we've got going on this year. Oh baby, this might be a good year to get in on the ground floor. So get a hold of me. Let me know. Um, yeah. So what's that? What else? Okay. So the next thing is related to the to to the whitetail thing. Um, so if you got on the website and you've you've you know that I have the edu- the instructional material for the elk uh, elk hunting institute. Um, I, yes, I've got a pile of videos that are going to be going up on that here shortly. Again, if you follow me for any, any length of time, you know, I have September's, you know, basically the summer months are deer habitat stuff and then elk prep, elk video stuff. September is elk. There might be a little deer food plot, deer habitat stuff in September, end of August into September, but September's elk, October gets back to deer. We're rolling our deer hunts from middle of October all the way through about the middle, well, whatever the late season here in January 
Uh, and some years it's early January, some years it's mid-January. But regardless, I'm rolling from middle of October until roughly, let's just say, middle of January with uh, whitetails. And then I've got a short period where I get, I've you've got trade shows and everything else in January and February where I'm putting together seminars for most likely elk uh, for the trade shows. And then I've got a little window to talk about just general stuff and, and work on some other stuff. And then literally March hits and I'm rocking and rolling, getting ready for spring turkey. April hits and April and May is turkey and deer habitat stuff. And then we roll right back in the cycle. That's why, you know, the the entertainment or the enter, yeah, the entertainment video series through the seasons, which I need to do some more of, and I'm going to start working on some more of those this this summer and, and fall. Um, that's why I was named that because it's just I roll from season to season to season to season to season to season to season. And this year I have a feeling we're going to do a lot more predator stuff just because oh my goodness, do we have predators? Jeez, oh flipping Pete, do we have coyotes and? bobcats and raccoons and you name it goodness gracious coyotes and bobcats and raccoons oh my so yeah we need to do something with them i mean just bottom line we just need to do something with them um but the other thing that i that people have been asking oh sorry i just digress so if you go on the website you know i've got the the educational stuff so you got the elk hunting institute the elk module all about elk you've got there is a small deer module in there that's got a few little things and there's not a lot in there and I'm going to change that. Um, and then you have the turkey module. I'm going to talk about that here in a little bit so I'm not going to belabor it. But there's the turkey module all right, in there. But you also look in there and you can see that there is um, guiding. There's a chunk in there if you want to know about guided hunts. So whether I'm doing the whitetail stuff, whether you want to do turkey stuff or whether you're interested in Elk stuff, at least for Arizona, that's where I'm licensed uh, right now is Arizona. So there's a chunk in there that that answers questions about the guiding and the the hunts. But in there as well is a chunk of, uh, it's consulting. And and people that have questions about consulting related stuff, little tiny stuff, general questions, that's no biggie. But those people that say, hey, I'm buying this piece of ground, or I own this piece of ground, or I want to do X, Y, Z on this piece of ground, can I get a plan? You know, can we sit and talk about a plan? Yeah, absolutely we can. I'll set up a time. We can either do a, like a Zoom meeting style deal, or we can just at least, you know, talk on the phone uh, with some maps and imagery and that type of stuff. I can, we can, we can, and then if you need, if you're close enough, you want to do site assessments, you want me to come out there and, and look at stuff with you, if you want me to come out and, you know, do some of the habitat work for you. That's all that stuff I do. And so people have been asking about that and, and they see on YouTube, um, Bill Winky, Awesome. Midwest whitetails. He, that, and I know Bill is kind of taking a sidestep off of that lately. Um, and it kind of turned the reins over largely to the other guys, but Midwest, Midwest whitetail does a phenomenal job talking about all sorts of stuff. And they've got a great YouTube channel. Uh, Dr. Grant Woods, Growing Deer TV. Incredible resource uh, for a lot of whitetail enthusiasts. And then same thing, um, Jeff Sturgis, uh, Whitetail Whitetail Habitat Solutions. Uh, Jeff has got a massive uh, YouTube channel that he shares all sorts of material on. Very detailed. Does a great job. But here's the thing that all three of those have in common that sets me a little bit apart. They're all from 
the middle Midwest to the east. They're like eastern Kansas. Maybe they're middle Kansas, but they're at the very least, they're, let's be generous, middle of Kansas, middle of, you know, you got middle of Kansas, maybe a little bit of Nebraska. You've got you know, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, you know, and Ohio, Wisconsin. It's it's all that direction. Their drought years are better than our normal years. And even for me, where I'm at, I think you know, for our annual precipitation, I've got a buddy that that uh, is in western Nebraska. Heck. His good year is is our dry year. So when we're talking about when people you know watch a video from Jeff or a video from Bill Winky or or Dr. Woods, and especially Dr. Woods in his the the um, some of the stuff he talks about he he's coined it uh, what he calls a buffalo system, or other people call it continuous cropping. Um, you can throw in their cover cropping if you will. Regardless, it's it's. One crop lead, you know, a spring, a cool season crop leads right into a summer crop, which then leads right into another cool season crop on the same piece of ground year after year after year after year. And you're just rotating that through, just building that soil. And, and especially with Bill Winky, with, with Dr. Woods, and now Jeff Sturgis, you know, working with Genesis RT, you know, RTP outdoor folks with their Genesis uh, no-till drills. Uh, I think I think Jeff has the three like I do. The other guys have the bigger equipment. Um, but, you know, you're using a no-till drill. It, it's phenomenal. But what I see out here in my world, A, we don't have the moisture. And B, our habitat is so different that we really don't have the ability to do some of what these guys are doing on the, uh, on the landscape. Uh, it, and quite honestly, a lot of my audience, you don't own land. These aren't, you're, you're not doing habitat improvements or you're, you're not even thinking about doing habitat improvements because you don't own land. It's not your land. All you're doing is knocking on a door and getting permission. Or maybe you're leasing a piece of ground and getting, you know, and, and using that lease for, for hunting access. But the land is owned by someone else, number one. Number two... Even if it's not owned by someone else, a lot of these lands are geared largely towards agriculture and cattle grazing to where the the agriculture and livestock operation is first and foremost. And then hunting is a nice side benefit, maybe. So when I look at, when, when people watch these videos from those guys, which are high quality guys, they're I watch their stuff. I glean from them. I learn from them. But when I watch some of that, and when people watch some of that stuff, and then they're like, oh, that's awesome. I hunt, you know, north central Kansas or northwest Kansas or western Kansas, eastern Colorado, western Nebraska. Heck, I've got some guys even, you know, that part, parts of uh, Oklahoma. They're looking at what these guys are talking about where we have wildly different moisture regimes, annual precipitation, just not notwithstanding, just different timing of that moisture cycle. And the fact that we have such wide open landscapes where we really can't control weeds. We, we, no, let me rephrase that. We cannot 
How do I want to put it? There are places you can watch videos in of, of folks in places where they get a handle on their weeds and if they do proper food plot and habitat management, especially with no-till drill, over time they can get control of their weeds and keep them wildly suppressed. They might only have to do a little bit of weed control here and there once they get the initial weed control, uh, well, under control. Uh, the weed management program implemented and their weeds beca- get under control. Out here, I can do all of that and then my neighbor two miles away who doesn't do any weed control or has a piece of his pasture that is just absolutely crap, well, there's in some of these places, there's not a sticking ounce of anything. And I talked about this the other day. There's not a there's not even a, a, a windbreak to, to slow that tumbleweed or that hemp or that kochia or that herbicide-resistant amaranth, and especially if it's coming in on other people's equipment, you know, you have custom farmers or custom uh, ag producers where they're doing custom harvest or custom planting. Well, if they're going from field to field to field and they're going from landowner to landowner to landowner, they don't, they're, a lot of these guys are not cleaning their equipment thoroughly. They're going, they might blow out the back end, but they're just, they're going from one to one to one field to the next. It doesn't matter how much weed control and, and what kind of weed management program I have on my, my, my properties. The next year, I, it, it's literally, I start over because I have a completely new weed load in because it blew in from the neighbors. Or worse yet, like we're dealing with on our rivers. Again, where we are in these western plains, our habitats are, in many cases, are these long linear corridors that where it just follows the river bottoms and in drainages and little erosion corridors and little pieces of waste ground and, and you know, in, in pastures and stuff. Because of that, we end up having flooding, especially we're on the, the Solomon River. We have periodic flooding in some of the, the adjacent tributaries coming into that. We get a thunderstorm that rolls out across here during the summer and it dumps three, four, eight plus inches of rain six, seven, eight, ten miles away. And all of a sudden we get the flash flood and we get the flood event. We get all the weeds from 10 miles away on all our neighbors, just right down through. And here we go again. And so the next growing, you know, the next growing season, I'm down there working. I'm like, what the hell, where did you come? What cut, where did this weed come from? Okay. So we have wildly different, um, things that we have to deal with and things that we have to consider. People all the time ask me about hinge cutting because they see and hear people talk about hinge cutting all the time. Yeah, you know what? Guess what? I, I tried it when I was uh, I first started. I first got out here because I thought it'd be awesome. I thought it'd be the, the greatest thing ever to, to improve some of these river bottoms. And uh, yeah, our moisture cycle is such where our trees are stressed. We have tree species that are not conducive to hinging and it really doesn't work the way you see other folks in the success that they see uh, in this in the middle part of the Midwest and pushing out to the east. We don't have the tree species. We don't have the moisture. We, it, it, it just doesn't work as great here in many places that you see other places. So a lot of people have started asking questions. Um, I think what I'm going to do is start putting together a little bit of a video series, maybe I, I, or information series 
you know, Western Plains, whitetails, and wildlife. Because it's not just whitetails. It's, it's everything is, is long, you know, right down the line with it. Uh, for me, it's going to be focused on whitetails and turkeys. But by the flip side, we're going to have we're going to be talking about some pheasant stuff. We're going to be talking about quail stuff. We might even talk about some of the wood duck wood duck stuff uh, that we might try to do down on the river bottoms and stuff. So, Western Plains, whitetails, and wildlife really focusing on what some of us out here in the Western Plains, Western half of the Midwest, if you will, and then quite honestly, you know, because there's people in in Eastern Colorado that there's great whitetail stuff going on in Eastern Colorado, Western Nebraska. Um, like I said, Oklahoma. I mean, it's it's just a different world out here, and and I'm going to start talking about a little bit of things that I'm learning out here, that kind of what we're doing. I'm going to do some of it on IGTV. Again, keep it you know on Instagram. Uh, I'll probably do some little bit stuff on YouTube as well. We'll see about that. I know YouTube's great. It's got a lot of exposure and it drives a lot of traffic. I just am really pissed off about their ideology and their censorship and and some of the the they. Anytime you're putting your your content on a third-party platform, at any moment where, where they deem, yeah, you know what, I just don't want to support that anymore, they just go, one button, click, and it's gone. You're, you're gone. You just, you are, you are there at their discretion. Um, yes, for these bigger sites and platforms, can you make money? Sure you can. Can, can those, you know, like YouTube make money off of you? Yes, they can. But by the same token, there's principle. There's principle. And I have a really hard time right now wrapping my head around, again, for those that watched episode 15, you you know what I talk about when I talk about the ideology of ends justify the means. And, and that's not where my... The core of my ideology sits. Where, where I lay... Where I, where I reside on that ideological spectrum... That's that's not in my wheelhouse, and so I have a real hard time justifying being on a platform that I think is just egregious with their censorship uh, and and control of information, just for my own personal gain. I, I truly believe there's a principle in the damn thing, and and there should be. So maybe I'll look at Rumble a little bit more, uh, or you know what, I'm just gonna keep housing stuff on RowHuntingResources.com because it's private. We can do what we want. We own the content. We own the video. We, we control who sees it, when to see it. And if that provider decides to go away, it doesn't matter. We have all of it to where we can just pick it up and move it to a different platform and we can, we can continue our voice. So, I don't know. Western Plains, Whitetails, and Wildlife is what I'm t- toying around with right now. It's going to be a place where I can talk a little bit more depth about what we're doing for our habitat improvements and habitat uh, our food plots, why we're doing what we're doing, how we're doing what we're doing. Um, like for the a great point is going to be this first one coming up. You'll hear people talk all the time, putting in screening cover um, to block you know visual at, you know so you can get to your stand and the deer don't see you, or to provide what I'm looking. I'm I'm interested in that. Yes, I am, but I'm more interested in it because we've got some of these river bottoms and these creek bottoms that the deer would like to travel or they do travel on. But they travel on them in under the cover of darkness because they're relatively open. And they're relatively open and they can be seen from the road. And so a lot of the times the deer, they move through these corridors a lot. But it's only at night when they feel safe. However, in those years where we, let's just say that it's it's the, the adjacent agriculture is corn. Oh my gosh. 
until that corn is harvested, the daylight movement is crazy. Why? Because the cornfield provides cover around them. All right, so having screening cover next to some of these corridors is absolutely awesome. It's key to help, to, at the very least, to continue to allow deer movement down those corridors or encourage deer movement down those corridors, but more importantly, to encourage deer movement during daylight hours, shooting hours. Well, you'll hear people talk back, you know, the, the, the Eastern Midwest guys will talk all the time about, you know, screening cover. You don't want to have food. You don't want food in your screening cover. Because then there might be deer bedded in there. There might be deer standing there eating. When you come in and you bump them, they spook and they whew, they take off running and there they go down to the bedding area, the other bedding area and blow everybody out and uh, you're done. Okay, well, that's great. That's great. But what I'm going to talk about is you show me a, a screening cover that's Roundup ready that I can use Roundup or some other herbicide on so that I can keep my weeds under control. Because if you're trying to put screening cover in a place where you have Johnson grass and Shattercane, good luck, brother. Because Johnson grass and Shattercane are going to come in with it, and you're just and if if you're going to allow, if if you want your screening cover to be a certain width, then that Johnson grass and Shattercane is going to take over that entire width or or be a part of that entire width of your screening plot. When we're talking about dealing with landowners like mine that are allowing me allowing allowing me to utilize a portion of their ag field, they don't want weeds encroaching into further into the interior of their fields. So I need to keep Johnson grass, shatter cane, herbicide resistant spiny amaranth, herbicide resistant kochia. All I mean those are the those right there are the big ones. Because they're hard to control and once they spread, they spread and they just become a, a nightmare. So if I'm going to do any sort of screening cover, I've got to have screening cover that is either going to A, be so damn dense that it shades out all that other stuff and it literally chokes it out and, and keeps it out. Or I've got to have something that's going to be uh, something I can use a herbicide on. Roundup, especially Roundup, since a lot of screening covers, a lot, not all, a lot, are going to be grass-based species. Okay? So we've got to do something completely different. We can't do what other people are doing. Because we again, it's the weed management stuff, and we don't have the moisture to increase to encourage such rapid and vigorous growth that they can come in and choke stuff out quickly. No, oftentimes what we plant comes in, and it comes in just as fast as, or maybe a little bit faster than the Johnson grass and Shatter King. But what what ends up happening? Those things grow from heavy-duty rhizomes that have been in the ground for a while. They've got more energy than the tiny little seed that we're putting in the ground. So even if our seed comes up and we're 6, 9, 10, 12 inches high and we're just about to get canopy closure in some of this stuff, if that soil warms up and that sends up a little shoot and it gets an ounce of, of sunlight, it just, just like a rocket shoots up and it completely overtakes that. So we have to have we have to have a herbicide option. So we're going to have to do things completely different than what other people talk about. But yet it's still going to be successful, All right? So we're gonna we're gonna definitely talk more about that type of stuff because it's going to be focused and it's going to be focused on catering to those type of folks that are like I said before. A lot of the people that come out and hunt the western half of the Midwest, it seems like a lot of you are. Hunting friends' properties, hunting, 
you know, places where you've knocked on the door and built or built up a relationship with a farmer that, you know, or a rancher that allows you just to come out and hunt. Uh, maybe you lease some ground. And yes, you have the, the, the ability to hunt it, but your ability to control crops, habitat, etc., might, might be limited. Especially if you have a, your cattle, ran, you know, people are running cattle and all of a sudden the cattle, the, whoever's running the cattle says, you know what, we really need to use that corridor this year for our winter pasture. And we're a little bit light on grass, so we're just going to run 300 head of cattle down in the river corridor this year uh, from November till uh, April or May. Okay, so some of your habitat improvements that you see people doing, if you don't own the land, it's all for naught. But I've got some ideas for you folks that you might be able to work with that landowner. You might be able to do some of these things because that's literally what I'm doing. My landowners are, well, two out of the three, two out of the three big landowners that I work with are ag first, cattle, ag and cattle first, hunting is secondary. If I, if I can make something good out of the hunting, great, so be it. But if if not, it doesn't matter. Cattle and, and crop production are primary. So everything I do on our landscape is outside of that. Now, the third big landowner, he's his his goal is he he has these properties for wildlife, not ag production, not cattle. It is for wildlife. So we're going to be doing some seriously fun stuff uh, starting this year. Already started a couple, and if you again, if you watched uh, my Instagram Instagram TV. You, Saw me working on a couple of the plots already this year, so that one that landowner is awesome. I, 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 I well, all of them are awesome, but th- that one's fun because he is one hundred percent wildlife focused. I have another landowner. Well, the other two landowners are a little bit different. One it has a lot of cattle interest, and I am doing things. Um, he's allowing me to do some things down in some cattle pastures that are benefiting be, are beneficial to not only the cattle range health, but also wildlife, which I'm going to share some ideas on uh, for you folks. And then the other one is he sees the value in wildlife. So he's actually allowed me to utilize portions of his active ag acres for wildlife food plots and cover plots. So as long as I'm doing a a responsible management program that allows him to at any time to convert all anything that I've already worked on that's within the footprint of his ag field at any time he wants to take that back and and put it into row crop uh, production instantly herbicide application fertilizer application roll equipment he can put it back into beans he can put it back into corn he can put it back into wheat or whatever I I cannot permanently change I know some of you are thinking, well, you use switchgrass. I mean, everybody wants to use switchgrass. Switchgrass, switchgrass, switchgrass. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, our switchgrass doesn't get much more than about three or four feet high, which is fine in some areas, but that's fine. Just our moisture cycle. But no, I can't convert some of these areas into perennial, whether it's warm season, native warm season grasses or otherwise, I cannot convert the land. All I can do is utilize it within the framework of active agriculture that still meshes with his herbicide rotation, crop rotation, fertilizer rotation, etc. All right. A lot of folks that come out and hunt 
deal with the same thing. So we're going to start sharing some ideas around that. Because I did have a question come in. Connor Nash, um, who I know uh, has come out and hunt with, hunted with me a couple times, I believe. A couple times. I know Connor. I know once. No, no, no. no. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, it's been a couple times. It's been a couple times. Um, wanted to know uh, about holistic farming or cover crops and regenerative practices. You know, just there's a lot of um, really... I mean, heck, even back when I was in college, they were talking about, you know, for instance, grazing uh, management, you know, for pasture, you know, range health, range quality, um, you know, short duration, high intensity cattle grazing can be great for range health. But what that means is you're taking a lot of cattle, you're putting them in a small to medium pasture, and you're just flash grazing that at the right time. So, for instance, like like right now, we've got a lot of cheatgrass out here. Cheatgrass, while it's actively growing, you've heard me talk about cheatgrass all the time. I can't stand this stuff. But, but, for what it's worth, while it's young and growing, before it starts to throw any seed head out, cattle will eat it, horses like it, and deer will actually eat it. So, it will provide some forage quality for some purposes over a very short amount of time. If you own cattle and you have the ability, the the ability to move those cattle on a regular basis, there can be an argument made that you say, okay, yeah, who cares about the cheatgrass? All you need to do is just go in there, saturate your cattle in there, March, April, beginning of May, just hammer the ever-loving bejeebas out of the cheatgrass until it gets warm enough to where your warm season native, you know, native warm season grasses start coming in. And then you pull your cattle out and let, you know, you've suppressed the cheatgrass. Now your warm season grasses are growing vigorously. Your warm season grasses can come in and can help outcompete that cheatgrass. You pull the cattle out, let the warm season grasses do what they're going to do. And then later on in the fall, when that, whatever cheatgrass remains and goes to seed, it's going to drop that seed. The warm season grasses are going to be there. Some of the seed of the cheatgrass is not going to find good seed soil contact. And so some of that seed that falls is not going to be able to germinate because you have really good cover. But then later on in the fall, the stuff that does germinate, you can go in there and do a flash graze on it again to where, yes, the cattle are going to you, you know, eat, you know, eat or utilize some of that native warm season grass, which now is going dormant because it's too cool. It's just dead biomass above ground. But yet the cheatgrass is now greening up to where that is the most palatable thing on the landscape. Again, you go in, you hammer your cheatgrass again. You only incidentally take some of the biomass off of your warm season grasses. That type of grazing regime can absolutely, or or maybe you flip it. Maybe you want some grazing in your warm season pasture. However, you're, you need to manage your cattle pastures. High intensity, short duration, grazing regimes can be phenomenal at building range condition and range health and pasture health and and biodiversity. Yeah. But there's a lot of cattle ranchers that just visit. It doesn't even matter if that's what they want to do. There's, There's a lot of cattle ranchers that don't know anything about that. It's just not culturally what they do out here. And even if they do know about it, it's just not what they culturally do out here. And those that don't care about what you culturally do out here, a lot of these ranchers, they don't have the ability to do that. You're talking about a, 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 
literally, the 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 rancher that's running the show is in his sixties, seventies. Maybe he's got a kid that's that's at the farm and and helping him take care of stuff. A lot of the ranchers are getting a little bit older, and they don't have the ability to to. I mean, when anyway, I digress. There's a lot of st- stuff to talk about. There are a lot of ranchers that just physically do not have the ability to do that type of grazing regime. Hell, one of my landowners right now that runs a hell of a lot of cattle, they don't own any cattle right now. They do a uh, yearling steer operation. They don't take possession of their cattle until like, I think it's like May, what, May 1st? May, sometime in May? Well, hell, they don't even have cattle before the cheatgrass goes to seed. So they can't, they, they would have to completely change their grazing protocol, 100%, 100% in order to do anything, you know, like we're, we're talking about here with, at least with a cattle ro- rotation. And so, and, and with the, you know, like the, the cover cropping and that type of stuff, I, when it was on, it was on social media, I, you know, I kind of chimed in on uh, one of Dr. Grant Wood's uh, posts talking about his Buffalo system and, and using cover crops. And, and he had actually come out my way out towards my neck of the woods and did a consult uh, a little bit west of me and you know he used that in a video to talk about oh how great and glorious things were because these landowners were using cover cropping and blah 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 and my my comment I don't remember what it exactly was but it was like yeah if yeah but it's a little different than what you're talking about with the buffalo system number one number two if you have the moisture because a lot of people we just don't have the moisture to do it and, and the important part was, is, you know, he was looking at the fact that people were using cover crops to help build soil organic matter and help infiltration of precipitation. Because out here, our soils are such that if you don't have cover on them, if you don't have structure on that soil, it gets really hard. It gets really, I mean, it can blow. I mean, it's it, there's a lot of sand, silt, sand loam component to where it starts to dry out. A, your organic matter is just going to blow off the top of the surface when you get those... 20, 30, 50 plus mile an hour winds that we get out here. Like today, we've got 20 some odd mile an hour winds. Uh, that's why it's so warm because it's blowing out of the south. I mean, it'll just blow. I mean, it just the topsoil will just blow, number one. Number two, it can get very, it, it's a fine soil, so it really does pack tight. And if it dries out, it's just rock hard. And so all of a sudden, you get a thunderstorm that, that rolls across the, the landscape and it dumps, say, an inch and a half of rain. Well, that rain comes down so hard, so fast, it cannot even infiltrate. It just hits the surface and just runs off into the creek, taking a whole bunch of topsoil with it, but it just hits the ground and it just rolls right off the landscape and just rolls right down into the creek and away it goes. And it really doesn't soak in. You really do need to have some stubble material on the surface of that soil, you know, on that soil to help trap that moisture, to, to keep it from blowing, number one, and then allow precipitation to hit the surface, roll across the surface and hit either the active growing roots, the plant, the crown of the plant, or that residual stubble to where there's places where that water can flow down in next to the stem and the root structure that was there before of the, of the vegetation that was there before so that the water actually infiltrates the soil and actually soaks down into the soil profile cover crops can do a great job at assisting in that but what was lost out of the conversation was 
They terminate it. The only way that there's enough moisture out where we are for cover cropping in most cases is they will put, they'll have a, a cool season crop out there maybe. And then they har- so they've got winter wheat. They do winter wheat. They harvest their winter wheat in June and, you know, in late June. And then maybe they throw a cover crop on it for a period of time in the summer. A lot of times, or better yet, better yet, what a lot of other guys are doing, they've got, they've harvested their crop in the fall. They put a cover crop on it for the winter and spring so that it's holding soil. It helps infiltration. But here's the thing. They terminate that cover crop well before they're going to plant their actual crop that's coming in behind it. Because you have to kill that crop so that crop, that cover crop, so the cover crop itself is not utilizing all the moisture out of the soil profile. And so that way when any rain hits the surface, the rain goes in, it infiltrates into the soil, and then it just sits there waiting for the actual crop that they want that's going to come in behind the cover crop they're terminating that cover crop and so in our again in our area sometimes yes do these can these practices be utilized yes they can but what you see a lot of if you're going to use huh geez here we go try not to dive down too far into the weeds on it because these are the things i'm going to talk about later on but yes what you see happening in other parts of the country can oftentimes be irrelevant unless you're actually getting information from someone who's utilizing that technique in the actual area that you're talking about doing this habitat improvements. I don't care what somebody does with cover cropping in Pennsylvania because it does not translate what we do in Northwest Kansas. If, if you want to show me somebody that's doing some good cover crop work, show me somebody that, that's you know next door. And quite honestly, show me someone who's next door that's actually running a, a, an agriculture, um, a crop rotation similar to mine or my landowners. It doesn't matter if they're an alfalfa farmer or they're a sorghum farmer or whatever. If, if my guys are doing a completely different program, that's great that, that that other guy is using cover crops in that situation for those crops that he's growing. Great. My landowners aren't, my landowners aren't doing that. And I don't have control over the agriculture that's in my place. And a lot of you might not. Again, if you own the land, great. You can play with some of that stuff. Maybe. Because unless you're going to buy the equipment and you're going to do the farming, or at the very least, you're going to do custom farming and hiring people to do it, you're going to be limited on who you're going to be able to have rent your ground or run the agriculture on your ground. And quite honestly, the other thing that you're going to have to consider is if you go wildly, wildly outside of what's generally in the area, you're going to have to figure out how you create a market for it because a lot of the folks that are going to be the custom farming, and especially, they'll plant whatever you want to plant. That's fine. Who's going to buy your crop when it's done? Is there a market for it? without having to truck it exceptionally far distances. Regional agriculture practices are, there's so much to this. There's so much to this that some of us in this neck of the woods, what it's apples and oranges. We're talking about fruit, but they're completely different fruit from two completely different trees and nary the two shall meet, really. 
So I've been taking these past number of years and trying to adapt a lot of what I'm learning other places, what a lot of other people are doing, and uh, putting it on the landscape here, testing it and seeing what works, what doesn't work. And then, yeah, we're getting to a point now where we're we're rocking and rolling. We're we're jiving pretty good, and and I'm I'm liking what we're what our system is. I I'm getting it very very streamlined, and that makes me happy because that's I'm hoping <laughs> that translates into less herbicide, less just less active work. I, I, if I can set these things up to just let them just cruise along on their own, that's that's just that much better. But we're gonna start talking about some more of that type of stuff. Again, I'm gonna share a bunch on IGTV but I'm going to probably have a bunch of stuff over on the uh, website as well. So Connor, yes, you're right. Those questions, those are all valid. I mean, all that is valid. Just we've got, man, whether it's culturally, whether it's precipitation all and control of the landscape, there's a lot of factors that go into whether or not that actually manifests itself on the landscape. All right. Uh, bump, 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 bump. All right, talked about the application period. If you want to come hunt, yeah, because uh, there's, yeah, again, I, I just list, I'm, so I'm going down a list of questions and things that people would ask about. So yeah, application period ends April 30th. Um, and yes, yes, we do have some slots this year. And those people that are in the program are the first people that are invited back into the program. So if you just want a place that you know that you can come hunt and have a high quality hunt experience, just come out and have some fun and shoot some really great deer. Hang out with me, hang out with our landowners, hang out, just have fun. Yeah. Get a hold of me now. Now. All right. What are. Okay. So we had a bunch of other. Hold on. Let me take a drink. All right. A little segue. I'm not convinced. So. I don't drink soda very much anymore, but when I do, that's hilarious. My, I just had a flash over to the uh, Dos Equis guy. I don't drink a lot of soda, but when I do, um, I don't drink a lot of soda, but when I do, I prefer Pepsi Zero, or it used to be Pepsi Max, or whatever. I, I liked Pepsi Max. Well, I went to go. I, I was I having. A, I haven't had it in a while. I was like. Hmm. I want some Pepsi Max. So I go to our local grocery store, and in the spot where Pepsi Max usually is, is this Pepsi Zero Sugar Mango. I'm like, what the heck is that? You know, the the, the lady that's working there, she's like, I don't know. The, the distributor wanted to do something. We, you know, they 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 let the distributor or whoever's dealing with this stuff stock the shelves, and that's that's what they were that's what they were pushing this Pepsi Zero Sugar Mango. I was like, well, I'll give it a try. And of course, they don't have anything other less than like a 12-pack. I'm like, oh, I'll give it a try. Why not? I'm not convinced. It's very mango-y. I don't know. It's drinkable, but I don't know if I'll buy it again. There you go. There's there's a little free quick review for you. If you, if you really like mango, then hey, there you go. It's different. Let's just put it that way. Maybe it'll grow on me. Like mold. I don't know. All right. So we had a bunch of, uh, just a bunch of, uh, and I asked this a while back and I've been answering some and just, anyway, got delayed. Um, bunch of questions have come in. Some of them are turkey. Some of them are deer. Some of them are elk related. 
For the elk stuff, I'm going to hold off on those. When I roll into more of my elk stuff, then we'll tackle some of my elk stuff. We got a bunch of turkey stuff coming. And um, so let me let me tackle some of those because some of those I've answered. Some of the people have already filled their tags. Some are still looking at, you know, bouncing idea, you know, are looking for some ideas. Um, so let's tackle some a couple turkeys, turkey questions. I don't know if I'm going to tackle... I'm looking at the time. Maybe I'll hold off on some of the deer ones as well. Maybe I'll just tackle the, the turkey ones and then we'll just go from there. Um, all right, first and foremost, a pile, a pile of, I mean, just a pile of people. And I've just, I've told most of these folks this already, but I'm going to tell you, a pile of people have gotten a hold of me that are just starting out with their turkey hunting career. They, I mean, they're just getting into turkey hunting or they've only turkey hunted for a couple seasons and they really want to, to uh, develop themselves in, you know, in their turkey hunting and they want to have better success. Number one, that's awesome, okay? I'm, I'm, I love the fact that we get, we're getting more and more people uh, interested in turkey hunting. With the same, by the same token, though, it shocks the hell out of me that we get more and more people every year interested in turkey. 10, 15 years ago, I was talking about, I was talking to people that were getting into turkey hunting. 10 years ago, when we started row hunting resources, especially the turkey module, I, I need to go back and look at some of when I did some of those videos. I mean, heck, it was back when I lived in Colorado. So we've got to be going close to 10 years ago. I put together the turkey module or the, the bulk of the material, that the old material that's in the turkey module now. Uh, like 10, what, eight, 10 years ago? Because there was a this massive influx of people that were wanting to learn to turkey hunt and get into turkey hunting. The fact that we're still in that mode is just, in, it's just incredible to me. It's, it's just crazy to me, but it is. And I'm, I'm glad for it. I'm, I'm glad to see it. We, we, I, I want people enjoying turkey hunting. I think it's awesome. However, Folks, seriously, I'm not going to lie. That's why I have the turkey module, okay? So we had a bunch of people asking uh, about, essentially, river bottom rios. They were going to go after Rio Grande turkeys on river, river bottom uh, habitats, whether it was in Oklahoma, whether it was in Colorado. A lot of them came from Colorado. We had some people talking about Nebraska and Kansas. Folks, in the I literally I have a multi-part series that's entitled understanding river bottom rios in the turkey module on the website. The turkey module is stupidly cheap. It's it was, it's designed to be stupidly cheap because it's designed for beginners that are just getting started in turkey hunting. Okay? And the reason why I put that series together is because when you ask me a question about Rio Grande turkeys along these, you know, western plains, okay, where you're talking about these linear river bottom corridors, the habitats are can can be wildly different depending on where you're hunting and the population of birds in those areas can be wildly different and quite honestly in over time we're seeing it here in my in, in my neck of the woods the conditions can change from year to year or over the course of five years or whatever to where what was there before and what you experienced before might be wildly different than what it is now. So you need to have an understanding of what those habitats are, how they're, what the differences in their productivity, the differences in the habitat, the difference in how that translates into being productive for Rio Grande turkeys, how Rio, the behavior of turkeys on the landscape, how they move up and down those river bottoms, winter range, summer range, hen flocks breaking up, 
there's so much there's so much to it. It's not just like Eastern wild turkeys or or what or even well, I I am hesitant hesitant to say this about Merriams, but even Merriams, because the way the habitat that Merriams occupy maybe not even anyway. Rio Grandes can be notoriously tricky to get figured out because of all, depending on where you go. You you listen to somebody talk about, I went, I, I went hunting and I shot my Rio and there, the, there was birds everywhere. There was 20 birds. They all came, you know, 20 toms came in all together and they're stupid as a box of rocks. And I was able to, I might as well just run out there and grab one by the head and wring his neck. And by, they were just, they're just stupid birds. Meanwhile, you got other people who are like, I've got a tag for a real grand turkey and I can't even buy it. I can't even find a turkey. And then when I saw a turkey, as soon as I yelped twice, the thing turned around and just sprinted away from me. Like, I, what the heck are you talking about? Real grand tur- turkeys are the easiest bird. Hell no, they're not. Well, both of those people are true, are, are telling the truth. Okay. Depending on the area, depending on the habitat, depending on the all so many factors, you can enca- encounter wildly different birds behaviorally. So, if you're thinking about hunting Rio Grande turkeys along those river bottoms, you go ahead. You can ask me a question, but I'm going to point you to the, the the turkey module anyway. Anyway, because those answers are in there. Because if someone, if you send me an email or an Instagram message or something like that. And then you're like, I, I, this is where I'm going to be hunting. Seriously. It ends up being a massive discussion because I need to know where you're hunting and what the agriculture looks like around it. What the popular, there's so many variables that I don't know. All I can do is you give you the broad strokes and all those broad strokes are already in the Turkey module under that, that series, understanding river bottom reels. But likewise, if you're just getting into turkey hunting, I had some questions come in about calling. Okay, there's a lot. I mean, heck, you can go, you can go on YouTube and you can find all sorts of free information. Well, heck, I've given a bunch of, of free information with uh, J. Scott Outdoors of the J. Scott Podcast. He posts it every year. We've got a multi-part series on turkey hunting. I've even got a and just generally turkey hunting. And then there's one that we have some discussions about Merriam's as well. So there's a, there's a pile of free information out there if you want free information. But if you want my information, you want my opinion, most of the, what my opinions are, I put them in the turkey module for that reason. So you can just dive in and pick it all apart and, and learn it. So with calling, heck, the, the calling videos I did that are on the turkey module, heck, I probably did them 10 years ago, but they're all accurate. Every ounce of the fundamental information in there, how to run a box call, how to run a pot call or a slate style call or whatever, how, how to run that, how to run a mouth call, how to use the wing, how to use locator calls, how to use the goblet shaker, all that is the same. It hasn't changed. I probably ought to go in there and freshen it up and just so it looks a little bit more new. But I mean, heck, it's, I mean, the, the videos are probably eight to 10 years old now. So it kind of looks out, it looks like it, but it is old. It, 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 it's eight to 10 years old. So it kind of looks outdated, but the, the fundamentals are the exact the same. But the benefit of being able to watch it on video is you get to copy me. Listen to, watch what I'm doing. I can tell you, I, I can tell you on a, I can, tr- no, I can sit there and I can try to talk to you or, or answer your question over Instagram and text you 
the fundamentals of running a box call, but you're gonna, it's not going to translate. And then I can get on the phone with you and I can talk to you about running the fundamentals of a, of a box call. But even the, me telling you it's not going to translate because it's in your hand. You need to watch it. Watch how I run that lid. Watch how I, I run the, the striker on the pot call. You need to see a lot of this stuff. That's why I put it in video. Okay, so there's an entire video series on running, just using turkey calls, box calls, pot calls, the peg and po, you know, peg and pot or what, how, slate calls, whatever you want to call it, friction calls. Okay, there's a bunch of different names, mouth calls, locators, all of it. All right, it's there. Utilize it. All right. Uh, same thing. Oh my word, decoys. I talk about decoys uh, all the time with Jay uh, on the on the podcast. But again, unless you see it, sometimes it doesn't make sense. And quite honestly, there's more to just r- running what I call the whipping boy setup. This year, I don't. We we set up the whipping boy setup once, and our birds were not. They were already past. Even come opening weekend, our birds behaviorally in their breeding cycle were already past that point to where they did not want to engage a strutter at all. And quite honestly, it wasn't, you know, and if you're familiar with the whipping boy setup, I've got the strutter and I got the Jake decoy. Well, the issue was they didn't want to be anywhere near the strutter. So they just didn't come in. So, I mean, like within opening weekend, I ditched the strutter, went to the Jake. That worked on one or two birds. The rest of the birds didn't even want to engage a Jake. Be like weeks before I normally transition and move and, and change my decoy spread, I had to adjust like that on the fly during my hunts because behaviorally the different groups of birds that I was hunting just in the properties I manage, they were at different behavioral cycles to where I had to adjust. Well, if you don't understand why decoy spreads work, different decoy spreads work and how to properly place them out on the landscape, you may not understand how to adjust when you need to, you're not even going to recognize the behavior that the bird exhibits in front of you to recognize that, oh crap, I need to adjust my spread because he's reacting to such and such and such and such. I have an entire video series for those people that reached out and wanted me to talk to them about decoys. Guys, that's why I did the entire series on understanding turkey decoys and placement, okay? I talk about all from early season all the way to late season strategies. Now, again, those videos were done a while ago. We have, I'll just say, Dave Smith decoys are are pretty mainstream these days. We have the Avian X decoys that are even better now with their HDR series, which I love. So Avian X has better looking decoys. And quite honestly, some of the just what I would call the Joe Schmedley generic, you know, quote unquote Cabela's brand decoys, man, you can get some seriously good looking high definition turkey decoys these days without having to, I mean, Dave Smith decoys are still the best looking and well, no, no. I really like the Dave Smith strutter, the small strutter, and I like some of their hens, but I really do love the Avian X Jake, and I really like some of the Avian X uh, HDR, or or I think it's HDR, the high definition, the hard plastic um, hen decoy they have. So quite honestly, I run both because I love the imagery of the the different body styles that both manufacturers uh, have created, and both of them are exceptionally well done. I mean, Dave Smith, again, I think they're still made, no, uh, yeah, 
think the turkey decoys are still made in the USA. I think it's their snow goose decoys that they had to outsource to China. Understandable. I'm not, I'm not casting stones. I, I know exactly why. I'm just saying I think the turkey ones are still made in the USA. I think the avian X ones are made over in China. But regardless, the body style and the body positioning is just phenomenal. The paint, awesome. Okay, so I run both. But you can find better ones. So when I did the video series, those were like these high-end ones that were like head and shoulders above everybody else, but so was their price tag. Nowadays, I think there's so many other options on the market that you don't have. I would recommend you go to those two manufacturers and get your decoy spread. But if you don't have the budget for that, you can still get some high-definition decoys. And I will say that I think this type, you know, I will add this right now. Uh, as a little modification, I think this day and age, I think you need it. I, I really do. I, I think the days of using a decoy that was a shadow of uh, of an impression of maybe a silhouette of something that resembled maybe a bird-like thing. I, there were some older older turkey decoys just were horrific as far as the realism. That, they still worked a little bit. You know, but now with high definition turkey decoys, why? Why? Just just get yourself the high definition decoys, the ultra real, realistic looking decoys. Because, again, like I said in the beginning, there's so many more people out there wanting to turkey hunt. More and more and more people out there on the landscape. More and more people running decoys. Well, guess what? The more realistic that you can get your decoy to look, the better you're going to be. And quite honestly, in my opinion, the more realistic you put your spread the better off you're going to be, even with lesser quality decoys, which I talk about in the turkey module, if you're wanting to learn about setting out decoys and decoy strategy. All right, so yes, absolutely. Get your high-definition decoys. You know, for those that ask, you know, does it really matter? Uh, Man, these days, I'm going to have to change my tune, I think, and I'm going to say, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to change my tune, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lean heavy on it. I'm going to say, yeah, I think it really does matter. Um, so again, folks, if you're going to, if you get a hold of me and you ask these questions, I'm going to point you to that, to those videos because I've already answered it. I've already put in all the work on it. Um, and quite honestly, it's better if you watch it, not just listen to me or just have me text you. And, and, but besides which I just spent, how many hours did I spend originally putting together the video? Why am I going to spend an app trying 30 minutes to an hour texting back and forth, trying to articulate my ideas in, in text over Instagram and Messenger? What? No. Come on. Just, just go watch. Just just go watch the video, okay? And then shot placement. Jeez, OP, there's another one. Goodness gracious, there's another one. I still, to this day, answer questions. And to, to this day, it just drives me absolutely batshit crazy to watch some of these videos coming out and these people talking about in Instagram uh, celebrities talking about turkey hunting and still taking the wing butt shot or taking, you know, with, with archery, taking the wing butt shot or taking the upper thigh shot. It ju- I've, got it, I've got videos I can show you anatomically why those are all bunk. They're, will they work? Yes, they can. Can you kill a turkey? Yes, you can. Will you recover the bird? Good question. Can you? Yeah. There was a guy, one of my former friends out here, every year he would hit his bird and just hit it a little low and the bird would take off running. He recovered every single one of them 
Like, I mean, like, holy hell miraculous. The guy's ability to recover a bird. I mean, I watched him do things to recover birds. It just, I mean, it just boggles the mind how good at recovering those birds he was. But the frustrating thing, and I, I even told him the last time we hunted, I was like, you are the most, you are simultaneously the most inspirational and frustrating hunters I've ever been with. Because he will, he'll, if, and this part of the reason why I don't run uh, archery hunt. Well, if you want to archery hunt birds, you know, turkeys with me, now I just, it's just period, end of discussion. We just do headshots only. Only headshots because recovery of body shot birds by the general public has become such that it the wounding loss for me in my properties is is unacceptable and I, and I just don't want to deal with it anymore. So you shoot them in the head, you either miss it or you drop them and done. Okay. But for this person, he would, he would hit them and it was frustrating because he would always hit them. He had a sight image that even though I have a video on, I mean, an in-depth video that talks about where to hit your bird and freaking just drop it in his tracks, body shot. I'm talking body shots. Where you can hit that bird and drop them in their tracks, and or at the very least, they're just they're they're just toast right there. He would try to aim for that, but he would always just default and he'd hit him a little bit low, and the bird would go flopping off or running off. So it was just frustrating. It was all get out going, Cheezle Pete, man. Can you just damn well please just hit the damn bird where I showed you to hit? No, by default, that's just not where he shoots. But goodness gracious, folks, he got every one of them. He recovered every one of them. And I mean, he ran half down, halfway down the river, the drainage of one of our properties, stood on top of a, a cattle corral, shooting down through, I, I don't know, I don't even know how he did it. I don't know how he did it, but he's always recovered them. <laughs> so in that regard, he's, in, I mean, it's just, it's incredible to watch him. It's incredible. But there's so many other birds that just go want, you know, limping off that never get recovered or go flying off and don't get recovered. Again, I've, I've talked about it before. I've got an outfitter that likes to crowd my fence lines. He puts his ground blind and he puts a bait pile right on our fence lines. Why? Because he knows we got the damn best habitat. We've got the roost, the turkey roost on us. And all he's going to do is he's going to try to get as close to that roost as he possibly can within the confines of his fence lines. And he's going to put his guys there. He's going to stack them in. And he's going to hope that a gobbler comes out there to pick in the freaking corn pile, which pisses me off because he's just growing raccoons up the freaking yin-yang. And now that we know that we have aflatoxin in the area and it's what here we are 90 some degrees out here do you think we're not growing fungus out here in corn piles and aflatoxin killing birds left and right pisses me off i but it's hey it's legal in kansas right now you can bait turkeys you can put you can take a thousand pounds of of corn and dump it in a freaking muddy hole and let aflatoxin go running rampant through that whole damn pile and every freaking turkey that comes in there can then end up having to deal with liver damage it can have reproductive issues and if the turkeys bring poults in there well great it kills poults outright so how many turkeys are we killing because of bait piles but i digress kansas doesn't want to do a damn thing about it it's still legal so, let, so people can do that. They can crowd my fence line and they can put bait piles out there and they can kill turkeys by aflatoxin or raccoons. Dr growing freaking 20 raccoons on a freaking bait pile on a pile of corn. <sighs> anyway, my point being is, is routinely I find dead turkeys 
on our just over our fence, just over the fence line, near where the outfitters' blinds are. And it just it's just frustrating as all get out that you know. Anyway, again, I don't want to digress too badly, but shot placement is key. If you're going to bow hunt turkeys, shot placement is critical. I have an entire video that is in depth that you, I can articulate it to you verbally, but you need to see it. That's why I spent the time to put it on video for you. And then if we're talking about uh, shooting with a shotgun, even that is critical to sit and talk to some people about because people oftentimes forget distance matters. So a lot of people are always telling me, oh, I, you know, where did you aim? I aimed at his waddles, where his waddles meet, you know, where the waddles meet the, the feathers. Okay, if we're talking 10, 15, 20, 25 yards, I am on board with that baby, okay? Or if you're using maybe TSS, you know, the, these higher end stuff, well, no, no, I can't say that. If you're dealing with a shot, uh, a shell that's super, super fast, okay, maybe you can push that out a little bit further. But if you start getting to 30, 40, and especially if we're using some of these high-end turkey loads, and I'm going to get to that here in a second. If you're going to use those high-end turkey loads and you're going to shoot them out at distance, you need to remember that gravity, does it doesn't matter. Gravity starts working on that shot. It doesn't matter how fast it's going. It doesn't matter how dense it is. It doesn't matter anything. <coughs> gravity is going to start working on that shot string as soon as it leaves a barrel. It's going to fall the exact same rate as regular lead. All right? So you still have to adjust your shot, your aiming point, accordingly. I talk about all the time in there about the shot placement. I'm going to be doing a, a, well, okay. So anyway, if they're farther out there, you need to start aiming towards their eye or at the top of their head because your shot string is going to drop, okay? Especially if you're shooting 60, 70 yards with the, with the apex and, and that high-end TSS stuff, all right? Your shot string is going to drop. And, and this... This last hunter uh, that came out was using Apex ammo, and I'm going to talk about that here in a second. He shot his bird at 62, the first bird 62 yards, and just, I mean, just crushed that bird. But literally, some of the pellets just shattered his lower leg. Why? Because he was aiming at the waddles. With 62 yards, that shot is going to drop. Now, granted, some of the pellets, yeah, some of the pellets hit him in the head. Hit the, hit, hit the bird in the head. But a lot of those pellets went right in the body. Which, they're so dense and there's, there's so much energy to them things that it doesn't matter. I mean, it just, it literally went through the heart, lungs, and it severed his backbone. I mean, it just, it just you might as well take a baseball bat and just smack that bird right across the, the middle of the back and just dropped him. I mean, he, it, just, it just annihilated his heart and lungs. It was incredible. It was incredible. But again... Aiming at the head at distance is is critical. So all that type of stuff is in the turkey module right now. So if you have questions on turkeys, please, dear, good, all good things and everything good and holy, just just sign, just go to the turkey module and get it. It's cheap, and there's hours of video in there. And then you can sit and listen. To, I've got video of hens just sitting there talking, so you can listen to hens, imitate the hens, and watch them. All right. But with all that being said, there's a lot of other people. I see it all the time, guiding hunters, and I get questions all the time about clothing or boots or shotguns or this is and that's and you know ground blinds. I'm just gonna these next couple weeks. That's part of what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna just head out to the field and I, I'm gonna 
part of the Turkey module now is going to be updated. Everything you ever wanted to know or asked to become a turkey hunter, I'm going to answer. I'm going to go from clothing. I'm going to go from boots. I'm going to go from head nets and gloves and socks and shotguns and ground blinds and everything that I can think of to where you said, you're the type of person who's like, you know, I've heard of this thing called, what is it? What is it? What did they call it? I think they call it uh, turkey hunting. I ought to check that out. It's going to be for for everyone from that person to the people that have told me that, you know, I turkey hunt every year, but I'm just not as successful as I want to be. And I'd like to come out and hunt with you. And so they come out and hunt with me. And as soon as they show up, I see what they're using as far as their clothes, what they have for their boots, what they have for the shotgun. I'm like, or their calls. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now I understand why, because you, you, the idea was there, but you just missed a couple very key points on what everything needs to be and how it needs to work together to help maximize your likelihood of success. I've always talked about, even in the turkey module, I talk about, I want to be an efficient turkey hunter, turkey caller. I don't have to be the best caller in the woods, but I just need to know what to do to be efficient so I can just go in, call, get a response, get them to work, come into my setup, and be done. I don't have to be flashy about it. But the same thing goes with your clothing, your boots, your decoys, your ground blind. If you're going to use a ground blind, your ground blind, how you set up. I mean, geez, Pete, how you set up. I've Even in the, elk, or the turkey module now, just how you sit against a tree with a shotgun or with a bow, it's amazing the number of people that just don't, it's not anything that they're doing wrong. It's just you didn't think about it. So many people sit and face all the action like they're watching a television. And then when the bird comes in a little out of position, they can't move and swing or draw their bow because their body is literally physically not lined up correctly to allow them an efficient and effective shot execution and mobility of shot execution. That type of video is in there. We're going to talk some more about that. So everything that you could ever want in far as turkey hunting is going to end up on the turkey module. So just please, please, please. You're welcome to send me questions. You are welcome to send me questions. And if it's an easy, just a bam question, I'll answer it. But if you if you ask an in-depth question that has already been answered in the turkey module, please don't be upset if I go, yeah, go here, watch that. It answers all everything that you ever wanted. I had a couple people who were like, well, you know, I got to pay for it. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, it costs money to host videos on computers and make them available. And you know what? It costs money for camera equipment. It take, This is my job. It costs money for me to go out and go do this stuff. So yeah, I'm going to charge you like 20, 25 bucks, whatever it is for the stinking turkey module. It's stupidly cheap. But you're going to go... Uh, Jeez, oh Pete, you're going to go buy some boogajoo new fangled decoy that's supposed to spend a hundred bucks on some decoy that's worthless. That I, Anyway, spend some money on knowledge. I'm doing my best to make sure that you have the best knowledge out there at your fingertips at all times. I'm going to expand the turkey module because there's way too many questions that are still coming in. And I'm seeing way too many people show up at during our turkey hunts that have equipment that is fighting them. 
It's 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 causing them less success than they could have if they just made a little tiny change. So I'm going to talk about that. And then for those that have been asking about Merriam's and, and some Merriam's questions, okay, same thing goes. The turkey module is largely geared towards, okay, there's going to be a lot in the turkey module that you're going to pick up on about Rio Grande turkeys. That's okay. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean the calling, the decoy strategy, the clothing, uh, uh, the shot placement, all, all that is the same for Merriam's. The only issue with Merriam's is the habitat, all right? And I do, I, I, I have, again, you can go to the Chase Scott Out, Outdoors podcast and I do a couple of them with him about Merriam's turkeys. And we talked about with Gould's turkeys and Merriam's are very similar. But I also have a YouTube video out there. It's literally, go to my YouTube channel. I've got, you got to search back. It's been probably 10, almost 10 years now. Well, eight year, 10, I don't know, long. I've got a Merriam's turkey hunt, uh, turkey hunt that literally I talk about how I'm scouting where I'm going up to on these ridges to scout, how I'm listening, what I'm going to, what I do when I hear a gobble and I want to pinpoint it, go in, here's how, how I locate them. Then what do I do to get in and get set up? Why am I going to set up on which birds and where? What's my philosophy? When I do set up, what am I going to do? How am I going to set my decoys up? I, 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 I talk about that. I talk, it's free. It's on YouTube. So definitely utilize some of that stuff that I've already got out there because it, there's a lot out there. Um, and I will address this one. This one does come in and, and I just, I, I guess, I guess I just need to make it a video on the, on the turkey module. The best time. When, when is the best time to go out in the woods? Whether it's for Rio's, whether it's for Merriam's, what is it? What's the best time of the season? Man, that's subjective. <coughs> that's subjective because I don't know what type of experience you want. Now everybody's like, well, I just want the best time that's going to help help me kill a bird well okay but if you don't understand the behavioral cycle of the birds and why the birds are doing what they're doing on a on a cycle you're not going to be able to identify what cycle they're in when you get on the landscape because i can tell you that you know for merriam's i loved in colorado and new mexico i love that like like right now right now late april maybe beginning of may but late April was my favorite time to be up in the mountains. Loved it. Just from a behavior cycle. It just seemed like I was way more successful this time of year. Um, like Colorado and New Mexico, I believe they start with something like the middle of, of April. Like April 15th, April 12th, April 15th, somewhere, somewhere in there. Like the middle of April. So you go opening weekend and, you know, usually I'm hunting in snow. And usually the birds are henned up. And usually blah, 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 blah. Now, was I successful in Colorado on opening weekend? Oh, yeah. I killed a bunch of birds in Colorado over the years on opening weekend. But this seemed like, by and large, the best time for me in Colorado and New and New Mexico, northern New Mexico. I don't know about the rest of the state, but at least northern New Mexico. That late, that towards the end of April, maybe the beginning of May, that seemed to be the sweet spot. However, that was because of the behavioral cycle of those birds that were exhibiting at the time. But if you have a dry spring or an early spring green up, those birds might, opening weekend, might be that same behavioral cycle that you normally see at the end of it. So opening weekend very well might be the best weekend to be out, or, or period of the season to be out there to catch that behavior where the gobblers are they're with the hens in the morning, they're gobbling their heads off, the hens, they all pitch out together, and then at some point during the middle of the day, the hens will go off and lay an egg and leave that gobbler alone and the gobbler starts cruising. Or at the very least, you know where the roost is. The hens are off. 
you can slip in, get close to the roost, and then towards evening, again, most of the time, you're going to only, you can, one half hour before sunrise, most western states, most states, you can hunt, the places you can hunt all day, you can hunt till sunset, not 30 minutes after sunset, sunset. So, Sometimes you can get set up to where you can be near that roost where those birds want to come back to. You start calling like a hen, like you're there early and you can get that bird to come running over top of you in the evening. So I love that type of, I, I love that scenario. But depending on the season, depending on in the mountains, we're talking about Merriam's here. In the mountains, if you have early spring green up, that and the birds are, are a little early on their cycle, that might happen opening weekend. Or guess what? You have a really snowy, late, cold spring and the birds are a little bit delayed based on body condition, the hen's body condition or whatever. And, and maybe that cycle actually happens the second week of May. But if you don't, I can tell you when I like to go, but I like to go there because of the behavioral cycle that the turkeys are in, not because it's a calendar date. So that's why it's important. To under, that's why I, I'm, I'm telling you, I pitch people over to this because I want you to understand and Rio's, it doesn't matter if you're talking about, I'm not even, I, I won't, I won't, I won't comment. I've, I've hunted Easterns. I grew up with Easterns and Easterns have a very similar pattern, but I have not hunted Easterns in a long time. I have focused on Rio's, Merriam's, and I, I won't even say focused on, but I have hunted Goulds and they all seem to have a very similar behavior cycle coming from winter, coming out of winter into spring, spring into the breeding season, and then when the hens go set on their nest, and then afterwards, okay? So they all have a very similar cycle. So with Merriam's, we're talking about spring green up in an elevational standpoint up and down the mountain, snow melt. Rio Grande turkeys on these river bottoms, we're talking about transitioning from uh, from winter range grain crop areas to nesting areas and and good high protein in my world winter wheat okay where you get high protein food for the hens the same thing goes for the mountains they're they're looking for food they're going to trans transfer you know uh, transition off of like your pine nuts and your your ponderosa pine seeds and and that type of stuff and they're going to start transitioning over to where that good spring green up and the the vegetation is green and growing where they get the higher protein all right so you're going to have to figure that out on the mountain what your snow looks like, what your spring greenup looks like, and then you're going to have to judge what your turkey behavior is based off of what you're seeing out there and then adjust. I like on a norm, quote-unquote, whatever normal is these days. In the past, when I hunted Colorado in northern New Mexico, 10-plus years ago, 10 to... Jeez, Pete, from 1996 until about 10 years ago, my go-to time was the end of April, the beginning of May. But that was because of the behavioral cycle that those turkeys were on. And that was completely dependent on the spring greenup during that particular year in those particular areas where you might be hunting. So, there you go. All right. <clears throat> and I alluded to alluded to this uh, a little bit ago. Our, basically, the premium shotgun shells. So, I had a bunch of questions come in about shotgun shells. Now... I have a video, full disclosure, full disclosure, I have a video that talks about using pheasant loads, your run-of-the-mill, box of 25, prairie storm, number sixes, pheasant loads, prairie storm, number fours, literally prairie storm, 
Three-inch, 12-gauge, Prairie Storm 4s, number four shot, is what is my go-to for pheasant. I suck at wing shooting, and I like to be able to shoot. I, I like, I, I'm better at killing them on the wing when they get out a, ways, a little ways from me. Okay, so Prairie Storm number fours are my go-to pheasant load. But guess what? Normally, when someone shows up to turkey hunt with me, and, we, and I, 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 it's right in the contract. I say, it's your responsibility to pattern your shotgun. It's your responsibility before you show up to know what your shotgun is going to do, what your pattern is, and what your effective yardage is. Some people say, I can shoot out to 20, and I'm, I'm, I'm unsure after that. Okay, I don't care. I can set up the decoy spread, and I can set us up on the landscape to where you're, you're going to get a, a, a 20 and under shot, hopefully. Or maybe people are like, I'm good out to 40. Okay, good. I know that now. I'll set the decoys up accordingly. I'll pick our locations accordingly. However, this last hunter that I just had in, he was, I mean, legit. We could have crushed that bird. He killed the bird. He crushed, absolutely crushed that bird at seven or at, at 62 yards. I have no doubt that he would have crushed it at 70. It was insane. But I'll talk all the time to people that'll show up in camp and they're like, yeah, we're good to go. I'm good out to 40. Shotguns pattern, blah, 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 blah. We start going, bird comes in, bird standing there, 30 yards. Go ahead, take the shot. Boom. Bird walks off like nothing happened. Okay, well, just maybe go, maybe it was just nerves. Okay. That after, whatever, later on that same day or next morning or whatever, another bird comes in. This one's about 35 yards or whatever. You're good. Yep, yeah. Boom. Bird walks off like nothing even happened. All right, we're going to go, we're, we're going to go take some, uh, some shots. We're going to go figure out what your shotgun pattern looks like. Maybe it's just you. Maybe you're just nervous and you're just yanking the trigger or maybe the, the bird was at 20 yards and you missed it. Okay, maybe it's just you. Maybe you're just nervous and you're yanking the, the jerking the trigger and maybe your shot string just cleared, you know, way high or way left or right or whatever. But a lot of times I'll we'll go out, put the cardboard out, I'll shoot and that pattern is like worthless. The closest two pellets at 20 yards is 12 inches apart. It's just like, or or the bead, you put the bead on the target and the entire shot string is hitting nine inches to the left or right or high or what, it's just like wildly off. It's like, geez, oh Pete, man. You, there's no way that you pattern this. A, there's no way that you pattern this before you came to, to camp. But B, okay, now what? Do I send you home packing and you're just like, it is what it is or what? No. I'm not going to let you come out there and continue to just throw lead in the air and possibly wound a bird, but we got to do something. I don't want you to go home not having a, a successful hunt. So what do I do normally? Literally, I'll throw a pheasant load in. Prairie Storm pheasant load. If they have multiple chokes, I say take that choke out, put a modified choke in, put a Prairie Storm number six in there, let's go hunt. We pattern that thing, and 90% of the time, that pattern's money out to 40 yards, and the next bird comes in, boom, they crush it, and we go home with a bird, and it's awesome. So, yes, I have a video that talks about using pre uh, just the cheap, you know, pheasant loads, effectively, for turkeys. But there's other turkey loads out there. There's a pile of different turkey loads out there. Winchester Longbeards, the, the, uh, they're all sorts of stuff, and, and people keep asking, are they worth it? Well, what define what's worth it? Because the eight, like for instance, we used Apex ammo at, on this last hunt. It's literally fifty bucks a box of five. There's like ten bucks around. 
It's insane. When you think about, if you think about it just from a standpoint of that one shotgun shell is $10, you just look at it and you're like, that's stupid. There's no way I'm going to pay $10 for a single shotgun shell. Really? Because when we were out there, I'm not going to, there's no bones about it. We've had an exceptionally difficult season this year. The birds are just off their, their, they seem like they're early in their cycle. And the, I don't, I, I don't have time to go. I'm looking at the time on this right now, so I'm not going to go into all the details about the behavior stuff on it. Maybe I'll do that for our subscribers if they really want to dive into the turkey psychology. Dude, these things are tough, man. It is literally, I mean, it's the toughest season I have ever been a part of. Not from the fact that we don't have birds. The birds are there. I mean, our, our population is down across the, uh, this region. The, the number of turkey, the number of birds is just down. I mean, that's just all there's to it. We've had bad, uh, nest success, bad brood, uh, survivability. Predators are just an insane issue. Um, but our habitat, uh, is changing and our crop rotations have been changing. So the numbers are down. There's just no two ways about it. The numbers are down, but we, but based on what I'm doing, at least for our habitat on our properties, we're still fostering a, a, at least some successful nests are hatching, broods are surviving. We're getting recruitment year after year. Not as high as it used to be, but we are still getting recruitment around our properties. Okay, so we still have gobblers. Like, for instance, that, that last week this time, that one morning we set up and we had literally, we had 12 different long beards come into that setup. It was, it was just insane. It was insane. It was awesome. Except they didn't want to play. They didn't want to, I mean, they wanted nothing. I mean, they just would not come in. I mean, they just would not engage. They'd come running by the setup. They'd, they'd stand off and they'd look at a distance and they'd gobble, they'd strut, and they'd just move. They'd just keep on going. They just, they, they, it, was just, it was just chaos and nobody wanted to commit. Nobody wanted to come in. And so I was constantly changing the decoy spread. And we literally, this last hunt, we just finally said, okay, done. We're, we're, we're done. No decoys. I mean, we were like hunting, like late season, no decoy. We went back to old school, no decoys. We're going to set up in travel corridors. We're going to set up in cover where we know the birds want to either travel or where they're going to end up being, or if they are going to respond to calling, we're going to make them come in and look for us. And legitimately, I call, and this was before we pulled the decoys, I set up the decoy the decoy spread. The first birds come in, saw the, the Jake decoy, I mean, just locked up, turned around, walked away. It's like, what the heck was that about? Okay, good. Okay, they didn't want, they saw the Jake. They didn't like the Jake. They turned around and left. Okay, fine. They don't want to engage another male turkey at all. Got it. Yank the Jake. Okay, you know, if you've watched the turkey module and what I talk about in that decoy series, there's a risk when you just put out hen decoys. However, sometimes the birds like to see those hen decoys and they want to come in and strut for them. Other times, not so much. And guess what? We find we start calling birds rocking. There's multi, here he comes and here he comes and he comes in. He literally sneaks in around us, seventy yards, pokes his head up and looks, and like I don't know how long it took. It seemed like it took forever for him to make he, he like eight to ten steps closer, and then he just stood there, stood there, stood there, just like they do when they're cautious and they see a bunch of hen decoys. 
Why are none, none of the ladies moving? We had a light breeze and the, the decoys were moving, but they weren't walking around. They weren't scratching in the dirt and they weren't coming over to him. So what did he do? Started folding his wings. I'll talk about that too. And then you see the birds stand upright and they start flipping their wings over top of one another, just kind of folding their wings up. That bird's getting ready to leave. He's going to walk out of your life forever. And my hunter said, he's like, dude, I've crushed these with apex. And he was using eights, I believe. He's like, with this apex, he goes, dude, we're, we're crushing coyotes with number fours at 95 yards. I'm like, what? He's like, oh yeah, it's insane. He goes, I've killed birds at this distance all the time with this load. I'm like, are you serious? He's like, I absolutely, I'll crush it. I'm like, if you're confident, I've, I've heard, I've heard what these things can do. I, and, I mean, I trust the people that are behind the company. I've just never witnessed it until that day. I told him, I'm say, I said, Sergio, if you if you think you can do it honestly without wounding that bird and making an ethic, and you make an ethical shot, I said, go for it, dude. He just crushed it, 62 yards. He just, I mean, he was like he took a baseball bat and just quack right across. I mean, just that bird hit the ground and bounced, didn't even twitch, no fluttering, just boom, dead. I bailed out of the blind like I normally do and ran over there. To th- I'm thinking the thing's going to get up and flop and jump. and No. Di- no. Done. Stone done. Just done. Crushed him. Guess what? That was a pretty smart $10 pay right there. 10 bucks. He just came out for a guided hunt. And I don't care if you pay for a hunt or not. You you just took... A, let's just say the DIY guy is just going to go out to a walk-in habitat area out here. And we're going to get to that question here in a second. He's going to come out to a state park area. Are you going to come out to a wildlife area? You're going to come out to a piece of public land out wherever. And you're going to compete with all the other hunters that are on the landscape. And it's hard enough to call a bird in. And you finally get a bird to come in and he hangs up at 50, 60. That might be the only bird that you had to come in. He worked your setup. It was good. You got set up right. You worked him right. You called just right. And all the other people on the landscape, he ignored them and he came to you, but he just hung up at 60. Is it worth $10? No, I'm not going to talk about the, the ethics of it or, or no, 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 no. Wrong word. Not going to, we're going to get to that one here in a second as well. We're going to talk about this whole turkey reaping issue. Hold the, hold on. Chrissy's going to start talking. So we're not going to say ethics because Sergio crushed that bird. Crushed that bird like, like crushed that bird. Like someone would do with a regular number sixes at 20 yards and just, just stone cold dead right now at 62 yards. No deader. It's not that the bird at 20 is deader than the bird at 62. They're both equally dead, like dead right now. So ethically, that shot was just as ethical at 20 as it was 62 yards. From an from a lethality and a killing, from a turkey kill death standpoint. Dead is dead. Now, if you want to talk about fair chase, or if it, okay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. Hold, hold on. If you want to have, we, we want to have a conversation about fair chase and whether you value being able to effectively kill a turkey with a shotgun at 60 or 70 yards 
We will absolutely have that discussion all you want. We can go to the bar. I'll buy you a beer. We will sit and we will have a conversation and I will, I don't care where you fall on it. As long as you can respect me and I can respect, I will respect you and we'll have a great debate. We'll have a great debate. But don't tell them, don't, don't, don't talk to me about, well, it's not ethical because it, 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 it's, it's, I don't know, riskier because it's killing it just as Stone Cold dead. And quite honestly, with the technology the way it is, it's probably even deader, deader -er -er at shorter range. I mean, you're, you're just, I'm telling you, this was the first time I've seen it and it was just, it was actually, it was absolutely mind boggling. Same thing with his, his second bird. Second bird that he killed was like 50, 50, 50 or 55 steps. Just crushed it. Insane. Insane. So <clears throat> when you look at it from a standpoint of, <clears throat> I've been waiting all year to go turkey hunting. I took a long, I took a, I took a Thursday and Friday off of work so I could do a long weekend. I bought a non-resident tag somewhere. I'm going to go travel somewhere. Maybe I'm going to stay in a hotel room. Maybe I'm going to bring, I'm going to haul my camper out. You know, I'm going to tow it with a truck, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to spend money on this trip. And I'm, I'm going to go on a trip. Or this is the first or second turkey hunt that I've been on. Maybe I, I got a limited license somewhere in a really good area. And man, there's turkeys there. And this might be my first time to really get into turkeys and really actually have some success. Is $10 worth it? Let me let me just answer that question for you. You're going to spend more than $10 on junk food at the gar- at the at the uh, gas station on your way there. If you're going to spend more than $10 on junk food, you can't spend $10 on the actual piece of equipment that's going to put the bird on the ground. Is it is it a price tag that's hard to swallow? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially if you want to get a, you know, the high-end choke and and if you're going to okay. There's all sorts of manufacturers out there that that are that are manufacturing chokes these days for those TSS loads and you can get a hold of uh, Apex or what what whatever man whether it's uh, heavy shot or Apex or anybody that's doing the high-end TSS loads. You can get a hold of them and find out what they recommend for their, you know, turkey chokes, what what you you should use. And I'm going to tell you, you should probably try to get a good choke that's going to that's going to maximize the effectiveness of that load because why in the hell are you going to spend $10 around if you put it in a shotgun that has a choke that completely negates its efficiency, its effectiveness. It just completely foobars the shot string. So yes, you should have a good choke. Now that doesn't mean you have to spend $150 on a choke. Just find out what the restri- you know what constriction of that choke should be from the manufacturer and then seek out what choke you get. I mean, whether it's you're modified, whether it's a stand like a standard modified will work, a standard full choke will work, a standard turkey load will work, whether you need to get, you know, buy one, yeah, Primo sells them. Carl, I mean, there's so many places you can get chokes these days. It's based on the constriction of the 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 choke. There's a number, 0. 0.655, 0. 0.650, 0. whatever, whatever that restriction or that constriction is, go shop around and then buy a choke that you can afford that is going to maximize that load. Yes, you're going to have to spend some money. And quite honestly, you're probably going to want to spend the money initially for two boxes of ammo, at least so you can throw one, two, three loads, you know, 
just pattern your shotgun so you know where the, the load is hitting versus your shotgun sights. Okay, so that first go is gonna suck, man. It's it's just you're you're gonna spend some money to get it figured out. But then guess what? After that, dude, a turkey steps out at okay, so the turkey steps out at 20, he comes right into your decoys. Great, smoke him. Take his head clean off at the at the waddles. He comes into 30, smoke him. 40, smoke him. 50, smoke him. 60, crush him. You, you had a successful hunt. Now, I know some of you are yelling into the phone right now. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to. You don't have to do that. You don't. But there's not a damn reason in the world, I don't think, that other people can't. Especially if you're going to be sitting and look at just might as well just segue into it because this is where it's going to go. So yes, in my mind, are the premium shells worth it? Holy hell yeah, man! I mean, I, I witnessed it. I, I witnessed their effectiveness, and I'm quite honestly probably going to for myself and personal. I'm probably going to move that way. I'm, I'm really, I'm seriously, I'm really thinking about moving that way, and I'm really thinking about whether or not I I get a choke and a and a. I mean, at the very least, have the shells here uh, for if somebody runs into problems uh, with their pattern, that they can run that, you know, they can run one of the shells. They'll pay for it. Dang it. I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to pay the $10 per round. No, they can pay for it. But anyway, we'll have them. But I shoot, I'm thinking about having them for myself because she's a Pete. Pretty darn nice. Um, but we get in this discussion and we can talk about ethics. And this came up in, in, in uh, Fair Chase. And just the, ve- the just the venom that came across with this whole turkey reaping thing. Now, first and foremost, where I saw it, a bunch of people let me know. So I believe it was Sitka. Was it Sitka? I think it was Sitka. Was it Sitka? We're just going to say Sitka. Posted on Instagram, on social media, they, they posted a picture of somebody, quote-unquote, turkey reaping. And it just blew up on the comment section about how irresponsible that was and unethical it was, and it wasn't fair chase. Hold the frickin' phone. What the hell are you talking about? I mean, like, dead serious. Like, what the hell are you talking about? Now, again, tur- for those who don't know what turkey reaping, quote-unquote, is, Turkey reaping is supposedly where you basically you are in in, a, in effect you become the decoy. You you are you no. There's some where you become the de- basically some of them are you're just holding the fan. Okay, you've got a turkey fan in full strut, you know, full fan that's that's fanned out. Some of them are just a, you can it's a fan holder that you can stick in the ground and, and put in front of you or in you know right next to you or whatever and you can lay there in the middle of the field and have the bird come in or sometimes it's it's maybe the the turkey fan mounted to uh, a two-dimensional image of a turkey and maybe that turkey is the, it's the front end of the turkey with the face and the waddles and the beard uh, maybe like uh, mojo has the one where you've got the the fan the, the front image of a turkey three-dimensional, and then you can put wings on the side of it so it looks very realistic. Hell, I've talked about in the past sitting up, you know, some of these field gobblers where literally they pitch out from the, the cottonwood tree, they go 100, 150 yards out in the middle of a winter wheat field, and that is, depending on the weather, that is literally where they stay all day. Out in the middle of a 160 acres of winter wheat, just 
hundreds of yards from any cover. They're out there all day. Go ahead and set up on the tree line and call him to the tree line. Uh Uh-huh. Good luck. Some of those field gobblers, there's no way in hell you're going to get them to come over the tree line. That's where the coyotes live. That's where the bobcats pounce out at you. No, thank you. We're just going to fly out in the middle of this pasture or this cattle pasture, and we're going to wander around out there in the middle of wide open nothingness for the rest of the day. And then right about dark, you know, 20 minutes after legal shooting light is done, then we're going to come back. We're going to stand 100 yards from the river bottom, and then we're just going to fly up, up to the tree. So yeah, you go ahead and you set up on this on the field edge and, and call that bird into those decoys. Uh-huh. Go ahead. So hunting those field gobblers like that, sometimes you have to be the decoy. Or you have to have the decoy out there, and you have to be out there with that in some way, shape, or form. You need to be out there in some manner near or somehow adjacent to the decoys. Well, I've talked about in the past one of the best ways that I've done where camo pants literally sit in one of the terraces with a black fleece. Well, I've done this with a black fleece jacket on with a turkey fan, a big full turkey fan. So it kind of helps cover me up, but I'll take, and I'll, I'll put the back of the turkey fan facing the turkey. So it seems like when the real bird looks at me, he sees a big black ball of my jacket and he sees the butt end, the re the, the, the backside of a turkey fan, a real fan, where the, where you could see the quills of those feathers, those white spokes coming out of his poop chute, essentially. So you got those white spokes, the, the real fan, the bag, the big black ball of the body of the bird. Dude, sometimes they'll absolutely come bowl you over. All right? It's awesome. It's a, it's a great way to kill some of those impossible field gobblers. <clears throat> Here's the thing. Yeah, if we if we want to have a conversation about whether or not it's safe, safety. Oh, we we, we absolutely we, we can have that conversation. Oh, absolutely. If you're on public ground, in and around cover, it, you, you'd be you're 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 dumber than a box of rocks. If you think I'm going to go out there and be and be near a quote unquote in this uh, sorry reaper, okay. The only reason why it came up was reaping, turkey reaping, because it sounds badass and it just sounds cool. You did, somebody needed to stroke themselves to make it seem like it was bigger and badder and just, oh, I'm, I'm a turkey reaper. They probably do CrossFit. I don't know. But anyway, it, it, it sounds awesome from a, a marketing standpoint. That's why it's called that. I, I think it's stupid because people have been sitting out in a field hunting field gobblers just sitting behind or sitting underneath their full strut decoy for as long as full strut decoys existed. I've done it. I've literally inched my way from the field edge. I got out of a ground blind. I crawled through the winter wheat. Birds out in the field. I crawled, belly crawl, local, just like inch belly crawl out to my strutter decoy, pulled a stake up, just inched my way further, 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 further out in the field and stuck him down and literally laid under the decoy and had birds come in and I was able to shoot him. That's the only way I was going to kill him. <coughs> and gasp. <gasps> I did it on public land. Now, back in that day, no one was hunting that ground. No 
one. Now would I do it? No way. No way. There's way too much. There's too way too much public pressure in most areas, and it's just way too unpredictable. Especially if we're talking about it doesn't matter. Especially when we're talking about shotguns. Okay, I mean heads up decoy makes uh, and has been popular for a while now because you can mount that type of decoy onto your bow, and it's freaking fun, man. To be out in the middle of a field into a terrace or whatever, laying down, and you just have the the decoy poked up a little bit. That bird comes walk strutting in and just all aggressive. And I mean, you can just pull your bow back. They're 10 yards in front of you. Just pull your bow back. They'll just dump, 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 dump. Here they come and just shoot them point blank. It's so much fun, man. <clears throat> but if, we're, if we want to have a conversation about safety in public land, okay, that's a legitimate conversation that we can sit and talk about. And again, I just told you, I think if you do that on, these days, in most, if you're, especially if you're in cover. Now, if you're out way out in the middle of a field where you literally can, I mean, some of these walk-in habitat areas out here in Kansas, it's a wide open wintery field and you might have birds out there. Okay. If you're 200 yards from the cover and you can see all the way around you, okay, well, it's unlikely that maybe someone's going to sneak up on you, but I still probably wouldn't do it these days. And that's your choice, by the way, if you want to or not. Because it's your choice whether or not you want to use decoys next to that in in that public land setting in and around cover that you still can get shot in the face by an irresponsible hunter. And if you're in cover and around cover, it doesn't matter what type of decoy you're using. If you're not paying attention and you don't have your setup set up correctly and you're not paying attention and, and other people are irresponsible around you, you can get shot just as easy, if not more so, because you're hidden in cover. But we can have a conversation about safety. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. But you want to talk about whether or not it's it's fair chase? Oh. Game on. Game on. Don't you... I, the, the number of people that I sat there and watched... Just going through the comments. And some of the names I know. I know. One of them's a wild, a very popular wildlife biologist now talking about you know it's, it's not fair chase and it should be a, I, I'm I, there's so many comments they're they're gonna start they're gonna flow together so I'm not saying that each individual said this individual individual thing but the the general gist was all consistent where it wasn't fair chase and it shouldn't be allowed and it, it is it's degrading to the the uh, the the history and culture and the what I, all the flowery adjectives that you can you know noble uh pursuit of this magical bird shut up i mean the the, the one biologist is his numerous times has gone on many podcasts talking about how he's what he believes is that early season harvest of gobblers disrupts hen reproductive cycles to where Early hunting of turkeys can be problematic and might be might be contributing to uh, lower nest success, nest success, which then ends up being or lower yes lower nesting success and nesting successful nesting attempts. Uh, how do I want to put it? Regardless, it's problematic and and it's causing problems. And we should across the across the United States, we really should have you know maybe later start dates to our turkey season. He said that based off his research. But yet, if you go and watch his page, he's out there in early season, in in the early part of of some of these seasons, shooting birds in the face. Well, which one is it? Biologist? 
is it is is harvesting birds early in the season a detriment to the nesting success of hens and the nesting cycle and and behavior of hens? Yes or no? If it is, why the hell are you out there in the early part of the season? Why aren't you out there in the second half or the later part of the season? Don't tell other people that their activity is 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 not fair chase when you are contradicting your own damn statements which you've done from a biological standpoint. What the hell? Other people talk about it's not fair chase. You know, you, you know, you're you're taking advantage of the of the bird and you know you're overwhelming his senses and, and he's are you freaking kidding me right now? Are you freaking kidding me right now? The whole point behind this quote-unquote turkey reaping, stupid name, turkey reaping, is the point is you get the bird to come into and you engage it point-blank range. Now, granted, some of the videos that you watch of these people doing it, they're dumbasses. I'm sorry. They're dumbasses. They're waiting. You're going to shoot. You're going to have a shotgun and you're going to wait till the bird is like three steps from you. And then you're going to jump up like an idiot on your knees and you're going to try to take a headshot at like three feet. Bam! Miss him. Bam! Miss him. Because why? Your shot pattern is the size of a quarter. Dumbass. If you're going to do that, fine. Let the bird come in and stop you with his spurs. That's fine. But then just let the bird get off there maybe like 10, 15, 20 yards and then take an ethical shot. If you want to talk about the ethics around the shot, Wounding and, and wounding and, and gun safety and shot. We can have that conversation. Absolutely. But that has nothing to do with reaping. That deals with a dumbass who doesn't know how to handle his gun and is not thinking properly. Because I would I will argue that that type of person would do the same damn thing if they were sit up against a tree and a bird came in really close to him. It's not about the the, the, the methodology of 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 having it and, and, and this is the thing. It's not so much that the style of decoy. It's the style of hunt around it because you can technically, again, I've done it. Sat out in the middle of a winter wheat, wheel, winter wheat field with a full strutter decoy and I'm just hiding behind the full strutter decoy versus just a fan that you hold in your hand. The whole idea behind turkey reaping is you are either the decoy or you are in immediate close proximity to the strutter decoy or the manifestation of the visual, the visual representation of a strutting decoy, a, a strutting gobbler, which then triggers their behavior. If this is the other thing, if that bird is in that mindset at that time, based on the season, the timing of the season, the population of birds around there, and whether or not that bird is is aggressive to, uh, and wants to engage those other birds, there, it's not like you can go out and do this turkey reaping all season long. No, not in. In some cases, in some birds, yes, they're they're susceptible to it. But in many cases, no, they're not. Because that's an early season, oftentimes from a behavioral standpoint, early season when the birds are trying to figure out their pecking order and they're they're aggressively trying to be with their hens and want to get other gobblers away, then they're aggressive with that. But as you move later on in the season, especially if you're dealing with two-year-old birds that have had their butt whooped 18 million times, they see another strutter in their in the field, they just turn and leave. They don't want anything to do with you. So it's not an, it, it, some of these people that were chiming in on this were like, obviously clearly have never done it. Number one. And number two, clearly don't understand turkey behavior, whether they they profess to be a, 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 an expert at it or not, because it doesn't work all the time throughout all the season in every area. Just like what I just told you a minute ago, Normal turkey setups don't work all the time 
or, or uh, decoy setups don't work all the time throughout the entire part of the season. You have to change them. You have to modify your set your spread based on the turkey behavior during in that area for those birds in that part of the season. So don't give me this crap that it's it's just too successful and it, it just causes it just causes way too much way too much uh, harvest and it's just gonna just gonna degrade and make it make it harder for everybody. Shut up. Shut up while you sit there behind a full spread of every freaking decoy that Dave Smith makes where the average person walking by wouldn't even know that it's a decoy spread rather than a, a real flock of birds. You're sitting there behind a, a, every freaking decoy that Dave Smith makes wearing your best camouflage leafy suit as you've tucked yourself back into cover in and around, you brushed yourself completely all in. The bird has no hope in the world of, of detecting some danger in that against that tree or in that cover. They're going to come and engage a stinking set of decoys that is so freaking realistic that it's difficult even from a, fo- a distance photograph of, of de- determining whether it's actual birds or, or a set of decoys. And then you're going to be sitting there with freaking apex loaded in the pipe of your 12-gauge shotgun, and you're going to shoot him at 70 yards. Shut the hell up. Fair chase. Give me a break. We're out hunting. Oh, don't, and, and again, I already talked about it. Don't even get me started. If you're sitting next to a freaking bait pile, goodness freaking gracious. Or, 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 no, 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 no. No, no. You want to talk about fair chase? Then I better never see a single one of these hunters sitting in a ground blind. Because I can tell you right now why I love sitting in a ground blind. Because I can have the window closed till where it's only like a couple inches wide. Because I love my I love my double bull blinds. Or the or the style of, of double bull blinds where you have the big 180 window open in the front. I can close that sucker down to where it's only open two, three inches. I can see out. The shotgun can poke out. I can be doing cartwheels inside the freaking ground blind while the turkeys are out there. Let me tell you something. I have actually, Kurt Geist, when 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 Kurt was still alive and we used to hunt together, I can tell you the number of times we would pop up a ground blind on public land and literally had Jake's in, in front of the, the ground blind. And they just camp out in our decoys for hours. And we had to pee. What would we do? We closed the ground blind, turned around, opened the back door of the ground blind, stepped out of the ground blind, standing up, took a piss, climbed back in. The next person went out and took a piss. Climbed back in, closed the back door, opened it back up. Turkeys are still sleeping in our decoys. And you're going to shit, excuse me, you're going to, you're going to pitch a fit about turkey reaping? And you're going to sit in a ground blind? Now, okay, fine. Sitting in a ground blind with Dave Smith decoys, shooting Apex 70 yards. Shut up. At least with turkey reaping. The bird is coming to you. Can we just take two seconds? Let's just dive into the world of the turkey biology, physiology. Let's talk about, oh, I don't know. Uh, How about we start with a sense of eyesight? Have we ever, has anybody ever talked about turkey eyesight? If not, let, spoiler alert, it happens to be really, really good. And it happens to be developed to pick up the slightest movement and uber high resolution of detail. 
So which one is more fair chase? Which one is a little bit more ethical? Shooting a bird in the face at 70 yards while you're sitting in a ground blind with uber high and decoys that the bird is distracted with the decoys anyway and then you're hidden inside this enclosed case where you can be sitting there naked doing cartwheels in the ground blind and they would have no no freaking clue or you're out in the middle of a freaking field big honking i'm six foot almost i'm gonna say 190 because i I lost a little bit six foot tall laying in the middle of the field hiding behind a freaking turkey fan and this bird's gonna come in and and, and he's gonna engage me 20 15 10 5 yards which one has the better ability to detect danger which one has the better ability to detect you as a threat to their life shut up I could I just I can't I can't even, I couldn't wrap, I could, I still can't even wrap my head around the, the, the holier than thou righteousness of some of these people talking about just trashing a, a methodology uh, on, on this, uh, on this decoy, uh, the, 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 the turkey reaping thing. Are you freaking kidding me? We have whole, across the United States in many areas are the, the turkey population is declining for a number of reasons. And we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to engage in intellectual battle over how we work with state agencies or change state agency minds or how we work with other neighboring landowners or how we engage our properties as our, with ourselves and how we try as hunters, conservationists, as supporters of the NWTF. We're not going to engage in intellectual battle on actually how we're going to restore our turkey populations to the, to the numbers that we would like to see that especially if we want to get down the road of R, you know, R3. Ah! If we're not going to engage in intellectual battle over helping our turkey populations. But we're going to go online and we're going to and this 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 thing is is what we need to you know raise sabers and charge into battle over? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? Give me a break, people. We've got enough problems that we're dealing with, with a habitat and predation, nest success, populations, state regulations, anti-hunters, gun regulators, like kind of these things that I would say are big things that might actually impact our ability to hunt and or our ability to hunt the same number and number of birds that we have in the past and still have the same level of success and experience we had that we enjoyed in the past into the future. I can tell you on, on our properties, even though they're very highly managed, the best that I can do, our numbers are down. I remember the days when I would have 50 to seven, 50 plus hens in a tree and literally 20 toms pitch out of the roost and it was just chaos i literally have a turkey hunt on youtube one of the the through the seasons videos where that happened and the criticism was i was calling way too much way too often i'd never call in birds like that uh a i did and b when you're dealing with like 20 toms in a massive group of hens like that um you just going Cluck, 
cluck, prrr, prrr, cluck. Yo, yo, yo. Um, <clears throat> uh, newsflash, uh, they're, they're, they're not even going to know you exist. And they're just going to go out in the middle of the field and do whatever they were going to do. You need to create a situation where they're like, holy hell, what is going on down there? Screw these 50 hens because these other guys are over here have got this handled. I'm going to break away from the group. I'm going to go figure out what the hen down there is doing because she sounds desperate. And guess what? Pull the gobbler in out of that and smoked him. Okay? We've got bigger issues out there and we're seeing in many areas de declines to where I sit there and now I would love to be able to share with our new hunters that experience of just massive gobbling. I mean, like so much gobbling activity, you cannot determine one gobble from another. Those type of experiences are just epic, man. They're incredible. We used to have them. We don't have them now. There's so many challenges out there. Can, can we have a, can we, can we flex our intellectual gray matter on talking about the NRCS and, and the farm bill and some of these federal programs on how they manage CRP and, and the farms and some of the other farm programs that might actually be uh, not conducive and not helping our wildlife populations. And we, and we can talk about all the time, uh, all you want about, well, the programs are set up to it. Yeah, the programs might be, but if you have personnel that are in the, in the agencies that are overseeing on the ground, the projects on the ground, and they don't know of this stuff and they're not implementing these things in, in a manner that is beneficial to wildlife, does it matter? Can, can we have those discussions or, or do we just need to go on some freaking social media page and, and battle it out over whether it's ethical to, to, engage in turkey reaping. That's why that literally folks, episode 15, understanding ideology. This is why that is so freaking important. I plot these people. On, I, well, I show you how people like that plot themselves on the freaking ideological spectrum. And I talk about why that's important and how it's going to be problematic in certain, certain situations. And part two is if you, if you you want to engage in these in some of these more difficult discussions and you want me to, you better darn well watch that because it's going to set the framework of your understanding. Otherwise, you're going to be lost. And part two is going to even be more important and, and more difficult of a, of a discussion to, to, to tackle. But we're going to talk about it because that type of situation that happened on social media right now is going to come up with that. It's, it's going to be a part of it. And what we see politically these days Socially these days, it's massive, man. Can we not fight one another over bullshit? I don't know. Anyway. All right, it's been long. Um, let me just tackle this last one and then uh, I'll kill it and then we'll, we'll, we'll get some other ones going here uh, next few days. Um, <clears throat> this one was about Kansas walk-in habitat area. Weehaw. Uh, basically, it's a public land. So in Kansas, you've got state parks, you've got state wildlife areas, and then you have uh, those grounds that the state of Kansas, the Department of Parks and Wildlife, will lease ground from private landowners for the hunting rights. And so you're actually engaging on private land, but you have public access to that public... Tongue's getting tired. You have access to 
the public has access to private land. Let's just put it that way. Now, those parcels are scattered all over the place, and some are big, some are small. Some have different regulations on when you can access and what you have to do, you know, what, you know whether it's archery only, whether it's shotgun only, whether it's both or either, whatever. There's all sorts of regulations surrounding them. At least for Kansas, there's an atlas, and I think Colorado has the same thing too. And a lot of other western states, a lot of other states that have this type of walk-in access or public land have you know regulations and you know map books and all sorts of stuff to go along with it to help hunters understand what the rules and regulations are for those properties and and what you might be able to find there. And the 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 operative word there is what you might be able to find there. People ask all the time, they're like, oh, I'm thinking about going out to this area and hunt these areas of walk-in access. What can you tell me? Is that area good? Well, if on the walk-in access book it said that there's, you know, could be turkeys out there, then there's probably the likelihood there could be turkeys out there. But you have to understand, we have different crop, there's, there's something called a crop rotation. A farmer just doesn't grow the same thing. Now, if it's alfalfa, it might be an alfalfa for five years. That's fine. Okay. But if you were, if you're just using normal, if it's if it's not alfalfa, it's going to be in a you know one year it's going to be corn, maybe the next year it's going to be corn, the year after that it's going to be beans, maybe they do beans on uh, after that as well, and then maybe after that it's going to be winter wheat, and then maybe after that it'll be winter wheat again, and so maybe it's a, a wheat wheat corn corn bean bean cycle, or maybe it's a corn corn bean wheat cycle, or a wheat wheat corn bean whatever. There's a, each landowner has a different cycle on how they rotate through their crops, and the reason why out here, the reason why they do that is so that they can have different herbicide on the landscape, so they can keep the different weeds at bay as they develop on the landscape. You always want to keep your herbicide a little different, so that way your weeds don't get smart to your herbicide, and then they just get herbicide resistant, and then you're screwed. See, so. There's a crop rotation. Same thing with fertilizer and uh, nutrient utilization in the soil. Like beans will put will uh, fix nitrogen so you can have nitrogen in the soil where corn uh, will use nitrogen so you can actually use the beans to help your corn later on. But corn's going to strip that out so you got to put some back. And so there's a, there's a cycle. Those walk-in habitat areas that the farmer or the landowner puts in, yeah, they're probably good areas. But the question is, is whether or not the crop rotation is still conducive to good food on the landscape for turkeys during that time that you can pursue them. And let alone whether we're talking crop rotation out here, because of the way commodity prices are, you see, I mean, there's some landowners that are shifting over. They're actually doing better financially with cattle. So what they're doing is they're sell, selling cattle feed or they're running cattle more. So you may actually have a, a landowner that says, you know what, I'm not going to grow corn or beans this year. I'm going to put my whole, my whole, all my acreage in uh, cane, sedan grass. Cattle feed. That's they harvest that, and it's worthless for wildlife. It's just a, it's just a dead. It's like your, it's like your lawn in the winter. It's dead. I mean, there's stuff. There's not. No, I can't even say your lawn because a lot of you have bluegrass lawns. No, it's just brown, dead nothingness. There's nothing there for wildlife. Period. Done. End of discussion. So it's this vast wasteland, uh, nothingness of food, and. Yes, it's still in walking access. You can still go out there and hunt, but maybe it's not good for turkeys at that point. 
Likewise, they can still have the, the the landowner can do what they want to do with their with their ag on those walk-in habitat areas. Yes, there's some regulations on what the the landowner can and can't do or whatever, but most of the time they have free reign to do what they need to do for uh, for their live or their livestock and or their agriculture production. You may find out that yes, this is a great walk-in habitat area, but guess what? The landowner decided to go ahead and keep that head, that all those cows this year, and uh, he needed more pasture, and it was he was worried about the bad weather, so he decided to pull them in next to the house or a little bit closer to the house, and so he just ran 300 head of cattle down in that river bottom all winter. Um, well, remember all that nice, heavy, thick cover that was great for nesting and great for escape cover and good for sanctuary area and all that. Well, now that's gone. It's just gone. So I cannot ask, I, I can't answer your question, questions on whether or not a particular habitat area is good or a, I'm going to phrase that, walk-in area, walk-in habitat area is good. I don't, I don't know. Most of the time you're going to have to get on Google Earth and you're going to take a look. Is there a good river bottom in, is that parcel a part of a good corridor of movement of activity for deer, turkeys, whatever. If yes, awesome. Okay, good. Then you owe it to yourself to take a trip well before season, just an overnight trip or a weekend trip or whatever, and just take a drive and see what the crop rotation is. What What's growing there? What's the agricultural rotation? What's going on with the, like for this, for instance, this year, and we're going to talk about this more, uh, our CRP. A lot of our CRP contracts rolled over and are renewed and our local uh, area, uh, local well, NRCS, fo- the folks overseeing the um, CRP program, renewed everybody and got everybody re-enrolled, but then made everybody either burn, disc, or swath and bail their CRP from a management rotation standpoint. Just start fresh and go over. Well. Those type of activities are good for the health, long-term health of the CRP, and 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 they actually required the the new uh, round for people to go in and drill in whether it's pollinator species, whether it's alfalfa, whatever. There, there's there's some different re, uh, re, uh, requirements that different landowners have been uh, engaged in, which in the long term is going to be good for that habitat. But right now, in the past, well, hell, past. Past eight to ten months, we've literally lost thousands of acres of high quality pheasant, quail, turkey nesting habitat. It's gone. It's either been disked under, it's either been burned off, or it's been most of them, most of them are swathing and bailing it, which means it's cut down to about an inch off the ground. Last year, if you remember, for us, we had a drought. So they cut that all off. We didn't get any good moisture on it. A lot of times those CRP fields were put into CRP because the soil is highly erodible and it blows, which means it's probably got a sandy component to it. That type of soil, some some, some of those soils don't hold moisture well. Anyway, so we had a dry year. We had no soil moisture going into the fall. That's why I did not plant about 20 acres, maybe more, of my food plots last fall because there was no moisture and they would not survive. So that ground underneath that CRP was dry to begin with. 
And then last fall, a bunch of landowners went in and swapped it and bailed it, cut it all off. So there goes your deer bedding, there goes your pheasant, there goes your quail cover, and there goes now, this spring, that a lot of those areas are, are turkey nesting areas. This spring, on many of my landowners' ground, they went in and swapped it, bailed it just now. So we lost all of our CRP. But we're again, we're in a drought. We were dry last fall. We're dry over the winter. We're dry now. If we don't turn into a wet cycle, you want to take a guess at how much growth, regrowth, we're going to get out of that out of those native warm season grasses this year? It ain't going to be three feet. We don't have the moisture cycle for that. It takes time. It takes a lot of moisture to get that type of growth and that type of cover. So I doubt this year we're going to have much growth on our native warm season grasses. I hope I'm wrong. I really, really pray that I do because that would mean we start getting into a wet cycle. But there's no forecast that I know of, long-term forecast, that says we're going to break out of this dry spell at least until late summer. Fingers crossed we do. But if that's the case, then we have no little to hardly any growth on that those pastures now to where is it going to be suitable for pheasant cover in the fall, in winter? Quail cover in the fall and winter? Deer cover in the fall and winter? I hope so. I'm skeptical, but I hope so. What's it going to do for our nesting right now? Especially with our turkeys? It's going to force all of the nesting to occur down in and along these river corridors and these, these narrow corridors. Oh, by the way, guess who else lives there? Guess who else is going to be concentrated down in those corridors? All the predators. Oh, and uh, yeah, by the way, yeah, we also kind of had some neighbors go ahead and run their cattle down in the river bottom all winter, so uh, there's no cover down in the river bottom either anymore. The hell we, where, where the hell are our birds going to nest? Turkeys, pheasant, quail, otherwise. And how in the hell are they going to have a hope and a prayer of, of having a successful nest, given the fact that we have plague proportions of, of raccoons right now anyway? We have, our bobcats are running around like little mini mountain lions. They're, we've got some cats that are, bobcats are just massive, but we've got piles of cats. The coyotes are just, uh, they're running in packs of seven to ten dogs in places. We're in a world of hurt. So, again, we can have a conversation, a difficult conversation about NRCS and about some of our our land, our federal land managers out there and whether or not we should have done one fell swoop or could we have been had a little bit more wisdom and a little bit more discretion and said, hey, you know what, I tell you what, why don't you go ahead and roll these in and we're going to be on a three-year program. You do this field this year, this field next year, this field, or these fields this year, these fields next year, and these CRP fields the year after that. Rotate them, sons of, anyway, those suckers. <clears throat> but my point being is the walk-in habitat areas. You're gonna have to go out there, and you're gonna have to you're gonna have to look at them. You're gonna have to go out there and look at them and evaluate whether or not you're gonna find birds there or not. Is there good nesting cover nearby? Yes or no. That's gonna dictate whether or not birds want to naturally gravitate that way anyway, regardless of the period of the season. Is there winter wheat around there? That's that's my benchmark for out here. Is there winter wheat around? Yes or no. If there is, then you're probably gonna have some birds out there and there's cover, then you're probably going to have some birds at some point in the season. Don't know when that's going to be. But if you don't have any of that stuff, maybe you, maybe you lean towards the later on uh, later period of the season when you have natural green up occurring, and maybe there's more reason for those birds to disperse over time as things green up a little bit on their own naturally. 
Um, but you're going to have to take a scouting trip and you're going to have to figure that out. So, Alrighty, I'm going to kill it for now. It's two and a half hours again. Sorry, I know they're long-winded, but I hope that helps. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was uh, educational. Let me know what you think about some of this. By all means, fire away with any other questions you want me to tackle during some of these discussions. I would highly recommend, I, I mean, I want you to, obviously. It's self-serving, but again, this is how we pay for it. This is my job. And if you if you like what I'm doing, if you find value in what I'm doing, I'm going to ask you go to rowhuntingresources.com and become a subscriber. You don't have to subscribe to, you know, I don't, it doesn't matter. Become a subscriber. It's cheap enough to be a subscriber for all of it anyway. And I think if you like deer deer hunting and turkey hunting and elk hunting and all that and you want to learn stuff, then, then by all means, jump on there. Become a subscriber so you have access to all of it. But at the very least, even if you don't, if you, if you just want the quote-unquote free podcast, go sign up for the cheapest subscription we've got on the website. Just help me out or help us out because Kelly does a bunch of this as well. Help us out. This is what we do. We do it for you, and um, we'll continue to do so as long as uh, we can keep paying our bills. And we love the fact that most of you, I mean, we're growing every year, and golly, some of you have been with us from the very beginning. And goodness gracious, I can't tell you how awesome that is. And I love your feedback. I I do. I absolutely love your feedback. So keep it coming. Um, All right. Yeah, we'll tackle some more deer stuff coming up, and then elk stuff is coming up. But, uh, yeah, I've got uh, right now, uh, like I said, for these next couple weeks, it's going to be just doing videos, doing a bunch of habitat stuff, getting some stuff going for deer season for this year, which is going to be awesome. So, all right. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon.